Everybody and welcome to the 300th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast who's proud that our ROI has forever lost the competition with our episode count. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation for a solid five years now. I'm your host, James Chilcott, at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Uh, big, big fat round number. Uh, good for all of our human brains. Glad to be here, and I'm looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Sure, they have some pretty good Black Friday sales that are wrapping up this week, so probably worth a look. I think they had uh, foils on sale, and those uh, discounts should stack with your membership discounts. So that's pretty cool. Travis, what is on the agenda this week? Well, this week we are uh, we're in episode 300. Kind of a big deal. Uh, amusingly, we are actually eight weeks. Well, actually, no, because this would be six years. So we are we're actually 12 episodes, <laughs> 12 episodes away, like a uh, a good chunk of uh, time from our actual sixth year. But 300 is a good round number. It's a good point to celebrate it, you know. Uh, so we're going to do, uh, we're going to keep things relatively familiar. Our MTGO metagame week in review in segment one. In segment two, we're going to do our top paper movers and MTGO movers. Segment three, our cards to watch. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week, uh, MTG finance, you know, five. Actually, it is six years later, right? Yeah, I, guess, not- I, guess, I guess you're right. It's... Basically yeah. six years of MTG finance very close to six through, years. through the lens of us and uh, we'll yeah. cough up a retrospective. And we have uh, we have esteemed guest Edwin joining us a little later. Uh, to you know, We haven't had him on in well, six years, but it'll be a good time to bring him in and kind of talk about how everything's changed in the last six years and what maybe the next six years hold and all that good stuff. Uh, but let's just let's jump in here right at the top. MTGO, many well, we can review our. Well, oh. hold up. Before we get to that, oh. I need to issue a point of clarity because I got harassed for it on social media all week long. When oh, we were, yeah, ta- I did see that. You really did. <laughs> I mean, in in some part, very deserved because it was pretty confusing. Uh, people immediately jumped to the conclusion that I had some kind of secret backdoor access to secret layers or something, or I got accused a couple times of being full of shit and trying to like pull the wool over people's eyes. Neither of which is even remotely true. The, the bottom line was we were talking about the arcane secret layer drop. And a few days before we started recording, I had booked my mischief secret layer drop. When you and I were looking at the website during the recording, we overlooked that one of those drops was on countdown to finish and the other was on countdown to begin. I got lost in the mm-hmm. shuffle and started thinking that because I had already put together my buying list for the arcane drop... 
and had already issued instructions to the pro traders in terms of the analysis for said drop that I had also already purchased said drop, but I hadn't actually ever checked out a cart because the cart wasn't live yet. So lots of people were like, what up with that? And that's what's up with that. I was just confused. Uh, Yep. And I, I had not purchased any yet and had not clicked through to purchase any yet. So like I just saw the countdown and figured that's how much time was left and had not actually gotten into the cart to to go, oh, wait, this isn't for sale yet. It's going to go for sale. So kind of we were on both sides of that and and missed that. Uh, I have since ordered my Mischief Wands. I did not order the... The arcane drop yet but I, I will probably do that in the next couple days here yeah and to be clear all the same instructions still apply i think our analysis of it is still bang on accurate um and the yeah. stuff that i said i i bought or didn't buy is exactly what i'll be ordering this week so uh yeah. nothing's really changed there but just so people that are clear. was really funny <laughs> a lot of people commented on that <laughs> yeah and fair enough fair yeah, that's fair inaccurate information is inaccurate the yeah. uh so, on to the uh, MDGO metagame week in review. Um, over the, at the Modern Challenge online from November 27th, that would have been Saturday, we had mostly a host of the usual suspects here. Amulet Titan uh, won the whole thing. And the most uh, sexiest thing about that list was they were running four Karn the Great Creator, which allowed them to go get liquid metal coating uh, out of the sideboard. And that provides a whole different angle for the amulet deck, right? The not a card you usually see in their list lately. And for them to give up those slots to it is is certainly notable. There is also this thing where Cultivator Colossus has been showing up uh, in some quantity lately. And in this particular list, there was no Colossus. So it was Karn over Colossus, it looks like. Okay. Yeah, the the Karn is is uh, is an interesting choice there that I don't think we've really seen much of before. Um, it might have popped through once or twice, but not with any regularity. But it makes sense. I mean, they're you know they're set up to ramp and hit a good chunk of mana pretty quick. Um, and I think with the way the bounce lands work out, they they can probably land on f- at four mana on turn two relatively easily. So if they fall short on getting to six, they can at least get that. Uh, Karn out on turn two so that's a fun little technique and i have a feeling we are not done with karn at all like i think every time we see a deck come through there's you know there's a reasonable chance they're going to find their way to this combo if it's anywhere near a big mana deck or a control deck or mid-range deck basically anything that's not hyper aggressive might find its way into the karn plan at some point i mean karn is basically a resource denial sub theme that you can build into your deck um given that the thing he most often goes to get is is liquid metal coating um, if you're trying to, you know, kill off lands on the opposing side. But the thing is that Titan now has access to four Urza Saga in the main. And as with so many other decks that have access to the full Realm of Saga, that means they've got a serious toolbox going on. And when you add Karn into the mix, between Karn and the Sagas, they have access to Liquid Metal Coating, Pything Needle, Tormod Script, Walking Ballista, Engineered Explosives, uh, Relic of Progenitus... And I guess Treasure Vault. Can Karn get tre- huh. can Karn get Treasure Vault? He can get uh, target non-creature artifact. Uh, no, he can choose an artifact card from outside the game. Yeah, he can because Treasure Vault is an artifact land, so Karn can go get that too. Um, so that's a real like a very flexible toolbox to have eight cards interacting with in the main. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's fun. I wonder. Um, you know, I haven't looked at Karn in a little while, to be honest. Uh, I wonder if there's if there's any meat on the bones. Did you look him up before? Well, the most interesting Karn tidbit as of late is that that secret layer that had those weird old border planeswalkers with the like mm-hmm. horrendous amount of text on them yeah. uh, is starting to land this week, uh, and. Mm-hmm. It was flagged, I think, on Reddit or, or elsewhere that somebody had pulled a fancy-looking persistent petition, petitioners out of one of those. And that's interesting because having a card that you can only get in a secret layer that people might want to buy 20, 30, 40 copies of is <laughs> likely to mean that card will go up in value over time. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one to put in there. Um, so yeah, there, there's going to be a bunch of Karns on the market that are ugly, weird looking Karns. Uh, how popular this will be, we'll see shortly, but I suspect that that does put, you know, a dampening effect on regular versions of Karn. Uh, I would think that Japanese alt art foil versions are still going to be a slow, steady uptick just because of their, you know, supremacy in terms of the best Karn you can have access to and their relative rarity. Yeah, I will say, looking at the, I'm, I'm flipping through the cards right now, and <clears throat> there's no clear winner here for me. Uh, like, the stained glass ones are cool. The non-stained glass English art is is solid, and the Japanese ones are also pretty cool art. Um, they're not ultra anime. Uh, and, of course, I'm a sucker for retro frames. So, really, I feel like there's no wrong choice here, which means that it kind of levels out the the playing field for all these various copies because whatever the cheapest one is will still look decent what does the stained glass foils go for right now oh eight uh 18 i think i guess there's only foils right there's only the stained glass doesn't have a non-foil version so i should just be saying what do the stained glass versions go for yeah Yeah, 18 i mean that's oh that's it well hold on yeah the secret layer drop yeah that's probably a buy right one has to imagine. Probably a buy. Um, because it doesn't look like these are getting handed out with Secret Layers anymore. It looks like they've switched to different promos. And during the like year and a half or whatever where they were were showing up in Secret Layers, you had to you had to like give it some space. Let 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 them filter out of the market. But that these are down to the Carns anyway, are down to forty seven listings, a ramp from like seventeen to thirty, that's pretty steep. Seems to me like getting in under 20 is going to be the play there. Yeah, I do like that quite a bit. Where did my tab go? I don't think the stained glass on the this on the Karn is all that well done. It's a little awkward. It's very um, washed out for the glass portions, but nevertheless, it's it's a relatively fancy Karn. And they'll I'd probably to... rise over time. Yeah, I'd have to see it. I haven't seen them in foil in person, so I don't know quite how it plays. But even if it's not the best secret, the best stained glass, it's still a nifty effect. I I also uh, suspect they'll leave KGC alone for a little while because it's it's had plenty of versions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say like two years from now, you'll get the borderless version of it. But for now, what what is available through stained glass and this latest secret layer is probably what you'll see in the market for a little while. So these secret layer ones look like they ship non foil, right? Like you can get, you could have gotten foil or non foil on them. No, if I if I recall correctly, the retro, to fairy frame. Yeah, if I recall correctly, to fairy's time trouble was the name of that drop, and I want to say that there was no foils. 
because Wizards was sensitive to oh, that's what it was. The, the foil values of these cards. Yeah, it's true. There's only non-foils of these. So the, the stained glass foil and the Japanese alt art foil are likely to be the foil preferences. This is kind of funky because if we're talking about a constructed, a card that's heavily constructed playable, you know, you'd be inclined to go with the non-foils, but the stained glass only comes in foil, and the Japanese alt art is Japanese. There's no English language Japanese art copy. Correct. So if you're a competitive player who wants a non-foil copy you can read, you're actually down to just the retro border copy and like the original pack copy, which is a little kind of a little clunky then. So it almost seems like you want the retro one because it's the the only one you can read that isn't foil. Fancy, I mean, read in quotations, right? Because that's the whole thing with that card is that you can't read it. It's 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 more legible than Japanese is, <laughs> but just barely. Mm. I mean, most people that play mm-hmm. that are running a modern deck have memorized their cards. Uh, but True. but and, and I certainly see plenty of foreign and foil and premium foil across the table for me when I when I've started playing modern locally um, lately. I might, oh, I might have only oh played, yeah, I've I mean, only played, played twice, but you know the in in often we get. MTG finance opinions from folks that live in small towns in the Midwest of the United States of America. And it's useful sometimes to remind those people that there are in fact huge, like high income coastal enclaves that have three to 7 million people in them (laughs) that have completely different retail dynamics. Yeah. I I mean, when I was playing modern regularly, just at FNM, I was often showing up with foil um cards a lot of the times they weren't english i had you know mostly every card memorized for the most part unless i was playing some weird ass shit which to be fair i did frequently uh but that was f and m um you know if i was playing competitively on a regular basis i probably wouldn't have made quite those same card choices just because of you know for all the various reasons so for the more entrenched player they might actually care about that stuff i mean at the very least i mean we know that like the old border or the retro frame fetches, we had the one guy talking about how um, the non-foil versions of the retro frames were the hardest version of that card to keep in stock for him. So there lends some credence to the idea that the non-foil stuff here is more popular, which just makes Karn, which just makes Karn a really a, a challenging card to buy because it seems like every version has its is going to have its fans, but there's going to be no singular correct choice. Stained glass Karn also definitely curls. Look, those planeswalkers curl hard. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the Japanese alt art, especially if it's series one, is much less susceptible to that because the Japanese foiling process is much more subtle. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, enough on Karn. <sighs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, ha- Hammer Time in second, also a big Urza Saga toolbox deck out of the board. Blue Red Murktide, Grixis Death Shadow, Four Color Yorion, Hammer Time, Hammer Time, and then the big kind of the Hey, remember me appearance at the top eight this week. Lantern Control in eighth, uh, originally made famous by Sam Black and his crew. Um, it pops up every once in a while, but I haven't seen it in a, in a challenge level or above top eight in some time. 
but again, just like with Amulet Titan and with Hammer Time, they have access to Four Saga now. And if ever there was a deck that could make some big construct tokens, it's it's Lantern Control. <laughs> you got Pixis of Pandemonium or whatever, turning your constructs into five fives or six sixes instead of two twos or three threes. Mm-hmm. Because those they're one one for each artifact you control. Yeah, like has twenty four of them. Yeah. Uh, and then does this have a? What can this see? Do they have a way to bounce? their ensnaring bridge i don't see one well they can prismatic and they can prismatic ending their own bridge if they want to oh non-land permanent uh yeah yeah so that's probably what they do you know if they end up with enough beef on their urza sagas they can just eat their ensnaring bridge and then attack for lethal but, I mean, usually your opponent has generated a huge wall at that point of creatures. So chances are the Urza Saga is mostly playing defense. But I guess the options are if they need it. Well, it's also just going to get the, the st- stuff they need. Because in the board, they've got Grafdicker's Cage. They've got Chalice of the Void. They've got uh, Python Needles. They've got Welding Jar. They've got Underworld Cookbook. So... Again, toolbox-oriented, and Saga is a very, very good card. It's also going to show up here in the top paper movers, where we'll talk about it a bit further. Um, On the Sunday, the challenge was Hammer Time in first, then Dredge in second. Third, fourth, and fifth were Grixis Shadow, all of which were running three times Dress Down. Uh, Keep an eye on the foil copies of that card. Uh, New Jund in sixth, Blue Red Murktide in seventh, and then the other Hey, What About Me deck that we don't, have, don't see very often anymore is Humans in eighth. And this one was noticeable notable because it was running uh, a fancy new human out of Crimson Vow, I believe. Uh, Adeline. Adeline. Resplendent Cathar. That's uh, one double white for an X4. Uh, human knight with vigilance and its power is equal to the number of creatures you control and whenever whatever whenever you attack for each opponent create a one one white human creature token that's tapped and attacking uh that player or planeswalker they control i've been i've been beat up hard by this in draft um i'm a little surprised to see it making the humans list in modern uh but pretty much every time a fancy human comes out it does show up in a humans list doesn't always top eight uh, the question is whether they're going to keep it and whether the human's deck can actually go neck and neck with this format. Um, they also have access to Imperial Recruiter now in humans as of Modern Horizons 2. And yeah, I caught that. So I got three copies of that in there. And I think everything else is pretty stock humans except for Gris the Hunger Tide being in here. A card I've seen a little bit more play uh, from on the Twitch streams lately. This is the Planeswalker that's Kind of got shafted to the side for the most part from Modern Horizons 2. One black green for three loyalty. As long as Grist is on, isn't on the battlefield, it's a 1-1 insect creature in addition to its other types. So that means you can tutor it up with green tutors. It means you can pull it out of the, out of the yard with reanimate uh, or animate dead and stuff like that, I suppose. I, don't, I actually don't know if that last one works, but... Uh, feels like that's what they were intending. Uh, plus, the, wh- which part of that were you wondering about? Whether you can reanimate it with stuff that targets creatures, since it's a one-one insect creature when it's not on the battlefield. Yeah, that's kind of the whole point. 
So that's kind of cool, kind of cute. Uh, not that it matters much in this deck. Um, create a one one also, plus one is create a one one black and green insect creature token. Then mill a card. If an insect card was milled this way, put a loyalty counter on Grist and repeat the process. That seems unlikely to happen here. Uh, that's more of a changelings thing. And then minus two, you may sacrifice a creature when you do destroy target creature or planeswalker. I very much suspect that's the part that they wanted Grist for. Because there's all these four-color Yorion decks and five-color Yorion Omnath decks and 60-card Omnath decks running around that have anywhere from eight to 14 planeswalkers. And a lot of the other humans' cards don't do a lot about that. Do you, uh, do you notice an ancient ziggurat can cast Grist? Because it's a because creature. He, it's a creature in your hand, yeah. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the Imperial Recruiters are interesting there. Um, I don't remember how much those were in the humans before. I think the last time we saw humans, they were playing Imperial Recruiters, but notable regardless. Uh, you know what else I spy in this list, by the way? What's that? Two snow-covered lands. Sure. That don't seem to have any purpose other than being snow-covered covered lands. Is there anything in the board that justifies that? Uh, no. Does not appear to be. Nope. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, They've also got a Sanctum Prelate in the sideboard, which was uh, new to modern as of MH2. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and, so- and uncommon from uh, whatever werewolf set we just had. The, the uh, Outland Outland Liberator. Liberator there. Yeah. Yeah. And then four Sanctifier on Vec, also from MH2. Mm-hmm. Which is seeing plenty, MH2. plenty of play in the format. MH2 had a lot of good cards in it. Yeah. Sh- figured out. Sure did. Believe it or not. I suspect so, we'll probably do another group buy on Modern Horizons 2 CBs before the uh, availability is completely through. They're, yeah. they're just too good. Um, all right, so moving over to the top paper movers, lots of interesting stories this week. Wedding ring extended art we flagged last week, getting up to close to thirty for the extended art versions. This is the, because they are only available in that version via collector boosters, and they are relatively hard to pull out of there. Um, so this has gone from another up, up another ten bucks, basically from twenty eight or so to thirty eight. Inventory still looking pretty hollow. You need to. Kind of playing the wait and see game. I'm happy to sell at this level. I've already posted my Japanese copy for sale for another ten bucks above that, and willing to take some offers, I suppose. But not in a huge rush to sell that. Um, nor the Umbrus Fear Manifest extended arts, which are basically the same rarity as the Wedding Ring. And whoever went after the Wedding Rings probably turned the corner and was like, "What else is the same rarity? This worked so well." And they've gone after Umbrus Fear Manifest at eh, push it. It was like at 18 last week. Now it's in the mid 20s somewhere, so 40% gains or so. And that works uh, works for them. I I would argue that it's mostly set boosters that are in short supply right now, as opposed to CBs. And CBs for Vow are already going on sale pretty early. Like you're seeing, like during Black Friday sales, we saw 170, 170, 180. 185, 190, depending on who was selling them. And you can certainly still pull a wedding ring. So I would imagine gaming companies going to dump a bunch of these on TCG at some point, not in the too distant future. And if prices are sitting at 40, they may price them at 29.99 or something like that to fire, like filter 40 through the system real fast. But you have to open a lot of product to end up with a couple hundred of these. So we'll see where, see where this goes. 
Did you look and see if Gaming Company has any uh, wedding ring stock posted? I don't think so. I think they they were sold out early because their price would have been best at the time where people started hunting it, right? Right. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I could see them but, running another wall back. Yeah, they they oh, for sh- for sure they're going to post fresh vow inventory. I would imagine. Now, the, the only thing that would counter that would be if it's if it's net net not good EV for them to do. Um, if if that's the case, then they, they may well not. But they 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 operate on a fairly slim margin, and there's a several cards in this set that are floating pretty high right now. So wouldn't surprise me to see fresh inventory for them pop up. Currently, yeah, none from them. Where we're looking yeah. at listings are filling in though. I mean, we're at 21 listings now, and it was down to less than 10 last I looked. So. Mm. And I think the lowest price copy is now $37. And I would imagine those will start slowly undercutting each other and pushing back in the other direction. And the thing about speculators is if speculators push something up hard and fast, they have they often have trouble doubling and tripling down. So you can only fight the market for so long. Yeah, I, I, I would expect on some of this stuff for them to retrace a little bit. It just seems very early in the cycle for these cards to take off and then keep going unless they're very popular. I think Wedding Ring will have a good lifespan ahead of it, but I don't think it's going to be the type of thing that just goes overnight. It'll be a slow drain over years and years and years. Yeah. Um, now, the next one you've got is there's a saga, the foils out of Modern Horizons 2. Uh, I noticed your note here says it's the same rarity. Oh, no, as... that's that's just in the wrong slot. Okay, that's what, that's what I thought. I'm like, These are different sets. I'm not sure how that works out. Um, but yeah, Foils out of Modern Horizons 2 for Urza Saga. Not terribly surprising. Uh, I mean, that card is quickly becoming one of the most important lands, aside from you know Basic Island, Basic Forest, in Modern, uh, which is quite a, quite a feat to have accomplished, really. So we're looking at, what did I say, 50 to 80 here. Um, looks like you were talking about in Discord earlier this week. And realistically, might not be the end of the run for that card at this rate. And also, uh, I'm guessing this is the pack foil and begin to wonder what the etched foil looks like. Well, they're, they're both in the same boat currently. I flagged this on Friday because the Black Friday sale moved a lot of copies. And then I started mopping up some copies around 50 and realizing that it wasn't going to be too long before they just popped completely. Um Cards everywhere. It doesn't look like it's likely to be banned anytime soon. Uh, it's a black eye for Wizards if it does get banned, and the format seems to be managing the card. Much in the same way they're managing Ragavan. Like, they're both clearly top 10 cards in the format, but the format is looking balanced and fun and, and very diverse. So doesn't seem like it's in much danger. Now, I will say that both the sketch foil versions and the regular, the pack foil versions are going to be in print for the better part of half a year still. Um, in theory, this, this set is going to be in print throughout 2021 and at least half of 2022. So we are on a declining scale of crackings, but there's still some more crackings to be done on Modern Horizon 2 product for sure, especially as more and more of these prices float up, right? Like that just encourages anybody who's got access at the wholesale level to dip again. And I'm not sure it can hold this price permanently, but it might. It's it's a really big deal card. It's so many different shells in Modern. And we talk about how Luris is everywhere, but Luris is a single copy. When we say Saga's everywhere, it's just as everywhere as Luris, if not more so, and it, people are running four. And if you presume that this card's going to be around in multiple formats for a long, long time, 
you can do a lot worse than having the original foils. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it. You know, presumably, even if it got banned in some of the in the eternal formats, some of the eternal formats, it would have a longevity in EDH. But I, I would agree that it doesn't seem like they're in a rush to get there anyway. So I'm not that concerned about it at the moment. Kinda, sorta. I don't. Kinda, sorta. Uh, kinda, sorta. Uh, <clears throat> but. I'm sorry, I was just looking at these etched foils and they're 50 bucks right now uh, with 17 vendors. 17 vendors. Uh, no one has more than two. And the ramp is pretty steep. So, uh, you know, if you think this is a good price point, you know, there's a $47 copy out here and then a couple are on 55. So there, that might be a might be a buy, depending. Well, even more so when they were, when they were still available in the mid 40s last thursday oh. or friday now that we're looking more like mid 50s to 60 plus it probably is still a buy if you're looking for personal use and it's probably a decent buy if they pop to 100 within a few months then even though you're only making whatever 10 to 20 dollars a copy you might still be in the money and in, in a very reasonable way yeah like 50 if buying at 55 is fine if you if you don't think it's going to get banned, which obviously we are unsure of, uh, you can make your own opinion about that. Um, you know, if you don't think they're going to get banned and also you're happy to sell them, what are we in November in like March or April, maybe at 80 to 90. So, you know, you're not going to double up, but you can still probably make a couple bucks on each copy. Uh, and you can be rel be fairly confident they will sell. Uh, after that is Ingenious Smith, the foils out of the D&D &D set, which I'm always going to call the D&D &D set. Uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. I'm never going to remember that. But it just looks like the foil uh, the foil versions here, two to like 350. So a fairly, it's kind of small ball. Uh, but this is the card you actually were talking about last week. Um, and it's been showing up in not only EDH, but Hammer Time as well. Ingenious Smith is the two mana uncommon. It's a one one. Um, you impulse for a, a quick artifact when you come when it comes into play, and then it can get a one one counter whenever an artifact comes into play on your turn. So a potent little piece here for two formats. Ingenious Smith, but foils not quite heavily doubled up in just a week since you talked about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that was pro trader action uh, off the call. Uh, people recognizing that it is indeed being seeing a reasonable amount of play and grabbing a few play sets to stash away. Um, Almost certainly. Then there's going to be some natural follow-on to that as people are, in fact, buying copies for decks and so forth. And it really just needs to stay in the modern meta um, for another six months for these to get to that $10 price point I was looking for. So we'll see if that happens. If it does, we'll probably be pretty pretty solid. Um, not the kind of thing I would have told anybody to go super deep on anyway, but I think two or three play sets at three bucks would be, or two bucks or whatever was pretty hard to go wrong. Oh yeah, yep, totally agree with that. Next up here we got Animar Soul of Elements. The uh, only foil ever made of this card from M25 has gone from 74 to low 100, so like say call it 130, 135, something like that, so 80% gains. Um, and it's really just been a slow, steady gainer since it came out. Um with there being three printings total, but no foil printing previously. So, uh, just try to double check in my facts there. Was the original commander printing in foil of Animar? Mm -hmm. It was not. 
It was not. I know that for a fact. Is that a 2013 Commander card? Uh, it is very old. 2013 sounds about right. Uh, 2011. 2011. I was going to say, I want to say Anamar might have been the first group, and he was. He was yeah. out there with uh, Riku and uh, Kalia and those guys. So I guess the, I guess back. I guess the lieutenants weren't foil at that point. It was just the face card, and he wasn't the face Correct. card in the deck. Correct. And I don't even know if the face cards were foil. I think they were back then. I think. Yeah, I think Aloros were always foil, weren't they? I'd have to look, I'd have to look that up to be double double checked. But uh, I, Aloro is not foil. The the twenty thirteen printing is not foil, and he's not part of the original group. Huh. So it, he's twenty thirteen. Animar is twenty eleven. Bottom line on Animar is that over in Europe you can still get copies in the forties or fifties. So if you're looking for one personally, you might want to snap one off. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I. You know. Actually, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree here. I don't think you buy Animars here uh even if you want them for yourself with foils i mean if we're talking about foils of this over a hundred dollars i the thing is the m25 version isn't interesting it's not the original version uh it's not a cool looking version it's just the only foil version which is likely a, a solution a problem that will get remedied eventually so i think i just buy the pack non-foil at eight bucks yeah, but we, and wait until we get a cool version down the road here's the thing though you've got lp foils that have sold recently on tcg player at 70 dollars, and near mint foils that have sold at 78 so if you can get them in europe at 50 you're you're in pretty solid arbitrage position because oh cause, i mean if you're if currently you're, lowest price of prices there's a single listing at 225 you just got to be the guy that sells at 129 and you're golden in which case if you're, you're just trying to resell them then it's completely fine. Like, that's a strategy. I'm saying if you're buying for yourself, I'm waiting. You're looking for a border list with fancy art at a Double Masters 2 or something? Yes. All right. Precisely. Like, I think the, I think the foil price for you, per, for a personal use, is way too high for a card that doesn't do anything interesting for me. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Next on the list, we got Death Shadow at a World Wake original pack foil copies, 40 to 80. On the back of freshly being, being freshly relevant and modern, you saw that there was... Grix's Death Shadow was four of these 16 decks in the challenge this weekend. Um, so Shadow's back on the menu for sure, and I'm sure somebody took a swipe as a result. Uh, Hunted Horror was a card that Jason discussed on BSB last week regarding Toxrill, because uh, Horror is a 7-7 for two black mana. 7-7 Trample, mind you. Um, that I'm actually fooling around with trying to make work with Dress Down and Modern, which is neither here nor there. Uh, Jason was talking about it in the EDH context because Toxrill tends to get rid of smaller creatures relatively easily. So giving people two three threes with pro green doesn't really matter much. Um, and this card's only ever been printed the one time. So this is just the non-foil copies going 10 to 20. I've actually got a foil sitting around that I was going to put in that modern deck. So I wonder if I'll be able to unload that for some pretty price. Possibly. This is the kind of card where they may never print this again uh yeah the haunted cycle was kind of funky it was cool though i, I this is the type of thing that feels like it would show up in like maybe not a jump start but one of those like off off kilter off brand products you know what i mean like not a full set just some of the one of those additional products it's just that like, it's it's a hard sell to put it into almost anything because doesn't see a ton of play in edh doesn't see any play really in modern to speak of and talks will not re- withstanding 
this is such a niche niche card and it does like it has a weird feel bad and in sealed too or or draft where it's so hard to make these kinds of things work like they you have to jump through so many hoops to get your seven seven that most of the time it's draft shaft and then all of that combined says this could be one of the many thousands of magic cards that never see the light of day again yeah, possibly. I mean, balanced with the fact that, like, how many people actually need copies of this? It's a, it's fairly niche, yeah. even for the people who want it, right? You know? Uh, in Indom- Indomitable Creativity. Yeah. The foils. Foils out of Aether Revolt here, 20 to 40. Uh, we were just talking about that. They had a big week at the Vegas, right? Like, last week or the week prior. Yeah. Um, that combo deck did real well. So here we are, the foils 20 to 40, which, you know, is not too surprising here. And I don't remember the last time one of us picked it, but I'm sure we have in the past. Well, my call my call was last week, arbitrage from Europe at $24. And that's oh, okay. looking better and better, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so not too shocking here. I, I don't remember what the supply looked like last week, um, but I bet it was already pretty favorable towards this, towards the jump to 40 here. Grim Hireling. This is just the regular copies uh, out of um the commander decks for afr uh going from 450 to nine dollars uh i called the ea's uh episode 296 cards just doing well in edh so far and likely to find a pretty permanent home as a mid-tier card that has a couple of different thematic angles to work in a bunch of different decks and we got slith <laughs> slith fireworker firewalker uh jss promos foils going from seven to fifteen no idea why that's on the move. Could have just been an old promo that got last few copies got bought up by a collector. Uh, got got a comment on that? No, just mostly that nobody cares about this card whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so it's got to be strictly on the JSS stuff is old type of deal. They have the supply side. Holdout yeah. settlement out of with a gate watch, uh, a land that's not at all on my radar. Apparently, the foils went from a dollar fifty to three fifty. Probably a spec related to Sarath the Viper's Fang. I'm not sure if BSS or somebody else mentioned this in the last couple weeks, but maybe that's what's going on here. Um, this card lets you untap a creature, which lets you fool around with which of the uh, static abilities Sarath is handing out. So, okay, that's cool, but there's not that many Sarath decks getting built. Is the thing. Yeah, that's funky because Sarath is like it's it's cool enough, I suppose. But she's mono green, which is I eh, eh, and I'm hold on, I'm looking here now at the the top commanders for for this week. Uh, nobody here super cares about this either. And Sarath is only the 14th most popular commander from Midnight Hunt. <laughs> if you can't crack top five in your own set, I've got trouble believing you've got staying power. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean... Especially if you're building this, are you building a foil, a fancy foil version of the deck? Yeah, I mean, it's a common foil. I mean, it being a $1.50, it's, it's so cheap, it's easy to just sell it or, you know, to, to pay for the foil because why not, but... Hmm. Meh. Next up here, when we flag somebody flagged in the Discord this afternoon that led to me buying nine copies almost instantly in Europe at thirty bucks. Olivia Crimson Bride. This is the Fang uh, foil showcase out of uh, Vow, 
went from 45 to 130 and i'm only giving i'm only only limiting the price to 130 because that's the cheapest listed copy the only other copies are over 200 currently on tcg keep in mind this is a foil fancy mythic from the set that literally just came out a couple weeks ago and it's clearly been targeted i don't for a second believe that this is um you know, natural market action. This is some people that noticed what was happening with Kojima Soren probably and said, well, what other foil fang mythics might be a big deal? Now, there's a couple things you need to know here. One is that this isn't as rare as Kojima Soren because Kojima Soren, if you're opening it in a collector booster pack, you could open uh, the borderless foil Soren, which nobody seems very excited about, you could open the uh, other foil Soren that nobody seems very excited about, or you could open the Kojima foil Soren, whose buy list in Japan jumped another 50 bucks over the course of the last week and is now standing just below 300 US, which prompted me, even after I spent the whole day with Alara yesterday and totally missed the Cyber Monday sale, which was 10% uh, store credit at TCG Player. Went ahead and snapped off two more Sorens at two ten apiece anyway. Because, again, mm. we're regularly putting together buy lists to Japan. I've got like a $4,000 buy list for the Pro Traders on my desk right now. And given that we've got that access set up, really nothing to fear from Soren reversing price at present. Doesn't mean it can't happen. This can still take a nosedive and pull a Phyrexian Borenklex. But so far... It's looking like the pressure from Japanese side on the price in the U.S. is doing nothing but increase. I mean, if we look at the existing inventory for Soren currently on TCG, we're looking at something like, let me just pull this up. I think it was something like 12 or 14 listings last time I checked, talking near mint copies. There are two listed at 205, but they're both from people with with very low sales on the platform that look a little sketchy and the feedback on them's not great, which is why nobody's touched those. Then there's one copy listed at 210, again, from somebody with 0% feedback and 38 sales. Then it jumps to 245, then 250, then 300, then 335, then 420, then 500 plus all the way up. So this looks a lot, so far, looks a lot more like Foil Extended our Jeweled Lotus than it does like Phyrexian Borenklex. Mm. Now, that all being said, you need like 444 packs to find one of these Sorens. Uh, Japanese buy lists would much prefer you pull them out of a draft or set booster box, especially if those were manufactured in Japan, because those, those are the ones they're paying really big, big bucks on. But even the English ones will get you just shy of 300 US. So now we go back to the Olivia Crimson Bride. Well, if you're opening Olivia, you can only open one of two options. You can you can open the uh, the fancy version of Olivia showcase fang foil, or you can open the uh, the regular version. And then there's going to be a double feature version, which will feature the basically the original base card art and frame but with that silver sulfide uh, glaze or whatever they're putting on it. The thing about Innistrad Double Feature is that, that those booster boxes are LGS only, and they're being priced as though they were like time spiral boxes. Like I heard 160 US or something uh, wholesale to retail, which is a lot more expensive than a booster box, like basically double, right? 
So even if there are fancy reprints in that set that will be of note, they're coming out of a box that costs twice as much. Hmm. So there's that to consider. Now, was this a targeting? Almost certainly. Uh, is Olivia seeing a lot of play? Yes. EDH Rec has fixed their stats on on Vow, and Olivia is indeed one of the top five mythics so far. Not only is she the top four uh, in the top five commanders being built at 347 decks reported, as opposed to Toxroll, which is number one at 800 plus decks, but she's also just in the in the 99, one of the top five mythics. She's in 712 decks reported, 11% of 6,200 since release. And that's alongside Toxril, uh, Cultivator Colossus, Avabruck Caretaker, which was one of my other picks early on, and Necro Duality, which everybody flagged as, you know, a doubling season type thing at Mythic, which is likely to be a gainer. So Olivia's definitely seen play, and I, and I think that makes sense. She, as we talked about during our set review, she's a cool vampire that you can either use as a commander or put into another com- vampire deck like Edgar Markov, or just run her in anything with black and red that has big stuff you want to pull out of the yard and get back into play because she she doesn't have vampire-specific synergy. She has graveyard-specific synergy. So what she really wants is a deck that has big stuff. Um, I could see her running in five-colored dragons, for instance, because you can go get your best dragon out of the yard and throw it back into play as long as you can keep her in play. And there's lots of other decks that have are in a kind of a similar boat that are going to have big, nasty things in the yard to fool around with. She's a powerful card. Uh, it is kind of hard to imagine that the the showcase foils are $130 for Olivia here. Uh, I would agree with you that that does not seem natural. If you, can, if you can position yourself to try and turn these around pretty quickly, I think it's a great idea. But boy, that's a, that's a hefty price tag for a card that's like, mm. it's going to be a popular card, but these are just coming out. It, it's it's mostly about like the relative scarcity of the card, the time of year the set is coming out, and it seems to all of these scarcity plays around Vow seem to be a bet against the usual amount of mass cracking. I I don't know that that is a bet you can easily win, but I went the nine copies I snapped off in Europe, and this is why it's one of my picks this week. There's still copies out there available between thirty and forty in Europe. And I had already flagged this as a card that I suspected was going to be on our cards to watch. I kind of was hoping it would get down under 20 on the back of not seeing any modern or standard play. After this early swipe, is it likely to retrace? Yes, I think quite a bit. Like, I think somebody asked me the Discord, like, what did I think was a sustainable price? And I said 60. Like, to pick these up in Europe between 30 and 40 and look to exit close to 60 seems about, re- like, that seems like could be doable. Um now, if you can get your copies over here real fast and flip on flip them onto TCG near 100 before the price comes down, you'd be in a really nice position. That might actually be worth rushing a shipping order if you could get 10 or 15 copies in Europe and start posting them on TCG one by one. Yeah, if you're quick enough on it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough position to be in. But, I mean, I suppose the option's there for someone who wants to chase the dragon's tail. Uh, Olivia Crimson Bride showcase foil on eBay. I'm just taking a look to see here whether they've overlooked this. Because sometimes you see TCG buyouts that don't echo on other platforms, and that can often be a, a good sign that things are are not as exciting as people think they are. It looks like the cheapest copy 
on eBay right now is about 110 or so. It looks like they left Russian foils lying around under 100. That don't make no sense. <laughs> if if Olivia is a hundred dollar plus card in English, she's absolutely a hundred dollar card in Russian Russian foil. That in buying a Russian foil at a hundred, I'd feel much more comfortable than buying an English foil at a hundred. Because hmm. you, you know how many waves of Russian mass cracking go on? Just the one. <laughs> and I wouldn't really call it mass. There's there's like yeah. there's like ten known guys that operate mostly on Facebook that deal a bunch of cards out of Russia and Ukraine and a couple other places, and they crack that product and they make some pretty pretty sweet margins getting premiums on the Russian foils. But I guarantee you, once they've run out of these Olivias, they're not going to have them like very many copies left on Facebook or eBay by this time next year. Yeah, you know it's one of those things where there's not going to be that many people. Who uh, who are in the market for those? But there's going to be even fewer copies available than there are people in the market for it. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So anyway, I, I think that we, I'll talk about this more in a bit. Maybe we may as well move on with the rest of this. Uh, Mangara's Tome at a Mirage five to fifteen reserveless card. And then Torment of Scarabs. I've got that misspelled in the sheet here. Let me fix that. Um, out of Hour of Devastation, foils from 5 to 15. That's on the back of the Curse Commander, which I think we saw with... I can't remember her name. I can't remember if it was AFR. Um, or if it was Midnight Hunt. Uh, or was it Midnight Hunt Vok? Anyway, there's a, there's uh, a new commander that cares about curses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I th- can't remember her name. We've talked about her before. I don't remember either. Anyway. There's so many now. The, the older curses in foil that didn't that didn't have particularly deep inventory of all mostly shown gains. Yeah, yeah. You'll probably sell you'll sell these pretty infrequently, I imagine. Oh, yeah. But I don't see them retracing too much in the meantime because not anymore showing up. Not too many more showing up anyways. <laughs> All right, moving on over to top Magic Online movers of the week. Most of them were Vow cards. Uh, Curse of Silence, 0.28 ticks to 0.59, 110% gains. It's showing up in multiple standard decks, mostly white-based, obviously. Hullbreaker Horror, 1.37 ticks to 4.04. Blue-red standard decks of two different varieties are running the card uh, as a high-end finisher. It's pretty busted once it gets on the table, that's for sure. And especially in decks where you can cast a bunch of spells. Uh, and then Denic Pious Apprentice. This is one of those those situations where the return looks so, so tasty, and then you try to figure it out in real terms and recalculate based on how many copies you actually could have got your hands on easily. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it starts to look more like Magical Christmas Land. 0.02 ticks to 0.17. That's 750% gains in a week on the back of blue-white control using it in standard. And I very much doubt that anyone made any money on that because it just wouldn't have been on their radar. Why the hell is this card legendary? It's a two mana, two, three lifelink. Uh, cards and graveyards can't be the target of spells or abilities with Disturb. Like, that's just such a... That could be an uncommon. Why is this a rare legendary creature? Eh, yeah. Sure. Why not? Uh, I guess he's... No, he's Midnight Hunt, so he's not even AFR. If he was AFR, like, I'd sort of get it because they have so many personalities, but this isn't even that. I don't like it. Uh, okay, so segment three, our cards to watch. Uh, 
please don't hold your breath for a super amazing episode 300 picks. We give you our best picks every single week, you guys. So, or, or, or at least the best picks for a Tuesday for a Tuesday night, given every all the other conversation that's already gone on. Right. It's not like we've been. Yeah, it's not like I'm been stockpiling. So I'm like, oh, in three weeks, I'm going to deliver this amazing pick on episode 300. Like, yeah, it would pass by then. Now that there's a very active pro trader community, and that was not the case like six years ago, um, there there is some dynamic tension between where I'm like what I'm going to use some hot info for, like whether I'm going to do post it as a pro traders only thing or throw it out on Twitter or I'm going to time it for the cast. Try to give it to you when it's when it's the most relevant from a time perspective most of the time. Yeah, you know, just to chime in on that real quick, I, you know, I used to have to deal with that a lot. Um, I was writing every week. I was appearing on another podcast. Plus, I was doing this one, and I had Twitter, and trying to make sense of what to put where was you know there was a, there was some effort to that, uh, and trying to balance it all and making sure that I had content for every stream. Um, and now that this is the only, the only content source I have, it's a little bit easier, but I'm also not mired in this, God, 30 hours a week. Like I was in the past, uh, where I was spending a lot more time every week just cause I didn't have kids or a house at the time. Uh, and my, my Twitter feed has fallen off dramatically too, in terms of magic content, because I save it all for the podcast. Uh, but it's, I don't, I don't think people realize like this is a can be a lot to generate on a weekly basis, especially if you have multiple streams that you're thinking about putting it out into. Yeah. All right. So let me jump here on cards to watch. I'm going to jump down to my last pick instead of tackling my first one here because we're already talking about her. Olivia Crimson Bride in Europe, 30 to 40. Um, I think that's a pretty safe pickup. It's not... There is a chance you're going to see this card under 20, which would have been my original u.s side buy-in point had it not been targeted early uh and since it wasn't our folks that or at least in public that did the targeting um i don't know what the thinking was here other than that they were comparing it to kojima soren the the point i forgot to make earlier was that because soren has one additional version there should be about 50 percent more of the olivias than there are of the sorens and so I would guess there's something like five to 6,000 copies of this total in the world, which isn't that much. And if you threw out the line on Reddit or Facebook or Twitter, folks would tell you it was infinite copies. But those people don't know how to have never done the math on sets and don't know what the fuck they're talking about. There's probably something like three or 4,000 Sorens. And there's probably if there's 3,000 Sorens or something like 5,000 Olivia's isn't that much in the grand scheme of things yeah sorry i was waiting for for there to uh to be more um you're right the supply is not is not is not endless uh it's not kojima but it's also going to be relatively restricted and we're talking about the 30 dollars showcase foils over here for olivia in europe i mean Given what the American prices look like, it seems like there's no way to deny this because it's unlikely, even if the 
uh, foils, the showcase foils here for Livia are start retracing in America, they're not going to plummet all the way down to $40 overnight. So if you can pick these up at 30, it seems like it'd be pretty hard to go wrong. Trying to see what, what uh, card kingdom, how bullish they are on the card. So here's an interesting thing. Part of what may, fact, may have factored into the targeting is that Card Kingdom is currently offering $22.50 US, $29.25 credit on these showcase foils. So this pick, if you're picking them up in Europe in the $30 to $35 range, you've got a backup plan as an out. What, what that suggests is that Card Kingdom is probably in part their algorithm keys off of TCG pricing, but also that the card is selling well for them. I'm writing the algorithm over there. Those are two of the primary factors, right? What is the velocity on this card? And what are the major platforms pricing it at? And how do we have to price to be competitive? And if, mm-hmm. if the combination of those two things is that they're they're pricing it, you know, willing to give you 30 bucks credit on it, then you've got a backup plan. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a solid plan, just, just given the pricing information already. It just, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for you to lose here, essentially. So one of the other things worth noting is that they, they didn't just go after that version of Olivia. The pack foils of Olivia also dried up. I had been looking at those end of last week in the like six to seven dollar range, and there's very few of those copies left on TCG at this point. And oddly enough, they seem to have left the Dracula copies alone, which is actually the best art out of all three, if if I'm having my say. But because it doesn't show Olivia the character. You know, they may have overlooked it. Yeah, I I mean, for my money, the Sisters of the Undead is still the most interesting version of this card. Yep, I agree. I think the, the Fang, the Fang border is fine, but I think the other one is far more engaging. Uh, I mean, really, if I was going to go any route, it'd probably be buying. I mean, the or the arbitrage play here from Europe is tempting, but the uh, this Dracula foil at, what what is this, 20 bucks right now? Jeez. I'm not buying these today, again, because the product is, is landing so quickly, is in the process of landing, but that is a card to keep an eye on. Pack foils are down to three here. listings on TCG Player with a total of eight copies. That's very, very low for a just-printed foil mythic. And we're just talking pack foil. You can pull these out of draft, set, collector booster, whatever. Mm-hmm. So... Hmm. Anyway, that was my Olivia argument. What's your uh, your first selection this week? My first one is uh, is deceptive. So this is my this is my dig at the people who read the show notes, <laughs> but don't listen to the cast. So I have Ancient Tomb on my list here. Uh, don't you dare edit this sheet, by the way. <laughs> this is, I want this going in the Discord exactly how it's written. Uh, I'm looking at Ancient Tombs here. The uh, the board there's so there's a couple versions here. So the what I have written down here is the uh, foils, the borderless foils from Ultimate Masters. So Ancient Tomb off the top is at a hundred is a hundred hundred and six thousand EDH reckless. So Ancient Tomb is it's the uh, it's in fifteen percent of decks built in the last week. It's like the tenth most popular colorless land or fifteenth or something like that. Very high. So an extremely highly played card in EDH, you know, in addition to whatever, uh, you know, legacy, other constructed format play it it sees. Um, The box toppers have, there's 16 vendors for the UMA uh, box topper foils. 
uh, starts at just about $100. Uh, there's no real Wall Street. This one guy has five of them at 110 But other than that, it's pretty much a straight shot across the 16 listings from 100 up to 100 up to 200 um, so there's not a lot of inventory out there. Our, our counterpoint here is the original Zendikar expedition, or should I say the Zendikar Rising expedition, uh, from the very first Masterpiece series. And those are clocking at around 200 right now. So I'm, I'm looking at these, uh, UMA box toppers to go from 100 to probably 200-ish. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, you're in this, you're going to be in here for a little while, probably multiple months, if not a year or more. Um, but you know, this is selling multiple copies a week. looks like on average one to two copies a week. <clears throat> so there's going to be a replenishment rate. Of course, uh, it's not like this is going to sell out in the next, uh, you know, eight weeks or so. But I do think that this is a, a very good copy that's arguably more appealing than the original expedition, um, and with the popularity of it in EDH in general, this seems like it's going to hike its way up to 150-200. Now, the the secret secret tech here is that there's also the Zendikar Rising. So wait, the original... Yeah, there's Zendikar yeah, Rising no, expeditions I, as well. Yeah, but I called the first one Zendikar Rising, but that's not right. The original one was... What was the name of the second Battle Zendikar for Zendikar. Set? Battle for Zendikar. So the Battle for Zendikar expedition is the original one. Zendikar Rising had the other premium, ver the second expedition version, which is admittedly probably a little less remarkable than either copy. But these are interesting in both aspects. I actually think the non-foils here are kind of appealing. Uh, those sell at a real good clip. Um, and let me double check my sales here. Uh, keep, keep in mind that all the, the, the last five days of sales data is definitely boosted by the sales, but proceed. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I, I was ignoring any any day where there was like ten copies sold. I ignored because I re I recognize those as having been big sale days, right? Sure. But I can scroll all the way back. I'm scrolling through back all the way through November into October. This is still selling usually multiple copies a day for the non foil Zendikar Rising expeditions. There are 29 vendors right now. There's a bit of a chunk of supply. Gaming Company has 14. Um, this other MTG Rares has 19. So it's not that there's no copies, but these are like 55 bucks um, for not that much inventory. And they sell two to three a day. Uh, and it's been doing that through October. So this is not just TCG player sales. So that's a pretty high velocity on a card. Again, ultra popular, non-foils with, a, with a, um, a, a mediocre supply at best. And then if you flip over to the foils of those, those are also selling at a good clip. Again, uh, usually at least a couple a week um, for the foils. And certainly I'm toggling all my filters here. 22 vendors on those. Again, nobody has a chunk of them with the price at 70. So these are starting about $30 cheaper than the UMA box toppers. There's a little bit more inventory, but not that much more. So these could probably go 70 to 130 or 140 in roughly a year-ish as well, as long as this you know keeps up and people hold their copies. For a card as popular as this in EDH, uh, I think all of these are pretty well positioned. And if we don't get another special ancient tomb here in the next year these all seem like they're set to, to rise 
I think I like both the UMA borderless foils and the ZNR expedition foils to show gains over the next year. The big trigger point is going to be whether it shows up in double masters. It makes two mana, so it doesn't mean it's a lock for that set, especially given how many times how many times they've given us premium treatments in the last ten years. But they might do it again there. If it dodges double masters, there's no other home for it all year. I don't think this is a secret layer style card. Uh, it's worth too much money. So the you know I. Th- I might lean towards the ZNR expeditions just because you're getting 30 bucks off your entry point. And then for it to say go 70 to 120 in a year or year and a half seems pretty, pretty reasonable. And the longer they leave this alone, the more likely that all of these, all three of the versions just keep draining to the point of being 200 plus. Yeah. I mean, this is why I ended up talking about all three of them because I think all three are, appealing kind of depending on where you personally land uh i think if i was being safe with this pick i'd call it 100 to 150 instead of 100 to 200 but if you want to swing for the fences go for it yeah i mean you know we also might see the original expedition rise over 200 too there's it's 200 205 205 210 220 like those could sneak up as well um and i mean these I guess it's it, now it's been a little bit of time since we got an ancient tomb, right? Because the last well, a year. It's been one year. Uh, Zendikar Rising was last fall. No, Zendikar Rising was not last fall. <laughs> last fall was Throne of Eldraine. <laughs> no, that was two years ago. ZNR comes after Eldraine. No. Yes. Uh, way. COVID compre- time compression. It affects us all. Zendikar Rising was a year ago. Yeah, man. That was after Throne of Eldraine? Yeah, man. God damn. I have... <laughs> I say... I feel like I say this every week, but I have completely lost all semblance of time. Yep. So, yeah. Weird. ZNR Ancient Tombs are about a year old. They're 70 bucks. They've already drained significantly. At one point, there was like 150 plus listings or something. Um, so, yeah. I think any any of those two Ancient Tomb fancy pants are likely to see... I'm going to go on record with 30 to 50% gains. I think the... The 100% call is probably ambitious, but these are still pretty pretty tight. Okay, so the point, I, the point I was going to make was, you know, the original one might have been constrained a little bit by the appearance of the Zendikar Rising expedition a year ago. And UMA would have been probably about a year, a year and a half before that uh, without checking the dates. If we can go a year without more ancient tombs, all of these will continue to rise because they're landing with enough frequency they have landed with enough frequency over the last several years to always be able to suppress each other, you know, to add a little bit of drag. But if you can get a year without any more copies, it's they're not going to have to deal with that. Yep. It's kind of similar like when they gave us a bunch of Masterpiece Soul Rings all at once and people thought that was all of them were dead specs and they were completely wrong. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the other thing worth pointing out about this card in particular is that it has no original foil because it's a Tempest card. Yep. So the only, yep. if you're buying foils, they're all from the modern era. Correct. Uh, all right, moving on to mine. Necro Duality uh, is about a $30 card and foil extended art version on TCG Player right now. And I would imagine that this like this can fill in for sure. Any amount of uh, box cracking by TGC in their, in their ilk is going to add more copies to the market. And again, we're pretty early in the cycle here. So I definitely put my little like yellow flag on this as a buy the card 
But if you don't trust my pricing, go ahead and feel free to wait. Lowest price currently on TCG for these is about $23 for non-foil. And then the foils are, as I said, about $30. Over in Europe, you can get them at €20. Euros. And the thing is, the euro has fallen against the US dollar significantly this year. You're down to about one13 so your dollar goes further mm. buying on card market than it did a year, year and a half ago. And that means you can snap off copies there for about 25 bucks. And then if you've got your setup where you're, say, stashing a bunch of cards somewhere for a month and then having them shipped over, then you're going to get them a little cheaper. Um, at the current price in America of about 30 bucks, I'm hoping to see some weakness. Or maybe you bought them on the 20% credit sale on Friday or whatever, and then you would have got your $30 copies at 24 That's also completely fine. Thing is, by the time you hear this, that's going to be mostly in your rear view. So you're, you could also be looking for deals on Facebook and social, other social media platforms where people are going to be giving you 10 15% off um, to get to similar to the European pricing. Wherever you get it, I think 25 is a fine entry point. I suspect this is a future $50 card, but it could also show weakness under 20 or 15 We're supposedly heading into this retail lull um, for collectibles that tends to start around this time or maybe a week or two from now and last for about four to six weeks. And then at which point Kamigawa is going to launch. So the, you know, you might get a chance at these cheaper. Currently there's 30 listings on the foil extended arts. I'm comfortable starting my, you know, my in on these at 25 and then watch to see where it goes and decide what to do about it. Um, if this was a rare, I'd be less, much less excited. But as a mythic, that's going to go in every blue-black zombie deck from here to eternity in EDH. And also has strong art uh, that works well in that format. Uh, this is definitely something you're going to want to have in your portfolio at some point. Yeah, these are... Uh, I mean, I really like going after these uh, FEA Necro Dualities. I, well, I should say the, the Extended Arts. I think you could probably go after both the... Um, you put FEA, it's borderless. No, these are foil extended art, my friend. Yeah, but the, that's what the foil column is for. No, borderless, but or, or you, you the, can't use the word borderless on foil extended art because it's a different frame. Borderless is... Okay, it's EA then. No, no, EA. no, no but there's there's a borderless... Borderless doesn't actually mean this. Borderless is a different frame they use for planeswalkers. Right, you're right. So this is an extended art that is also foil, but the frame is extended art, the treatment is foil. Yeah, but we call them FEAs. <laughs> that's like common parlance in the discord and has been for years uh the discord's not using spreadsheets um yes i do think that these are going to be a good choice i think that probably the foils and the non-foils are going to work really well here especially zombie being a, a such a popular tribe means there's going to be a lot of casual demand for this as well or at least you'll be you'll be able to hit both the people who will really want to do the most with their deck but also just want the cooler edition and don't want to deal with foil. So I think both are, are going to be solid options. It's It feels a touch early for me to be going after these, but I think setting a a, a price point of around 20-ish, um, 20 to 25 is probably, for the foils at least, is, is likely about as good as you're going to get. They might sneak down 17 or 18, but that seems probably the floor here, I would expect. Okay. They're pretty pop, and and then maybe they, maybe they don't really get any lower than twenty three, twenty four. I don't know. I think that I I don't. I think the realistic floor is about eighteen, but it's hard to imagine them. But that doesn't mean they will get that low. I mean, now that we've got the EDH deck rec stats back up and running, the the card is looking pretty good. The 
If we look at the top Mythex, as I said, it was in the top five list alongside uh, the others. And Necroduality actually has the greatest number of raw deck inclusions at 922 versus Toxrel at 625, Averbrook at 728, uh, Olivia at... Lost track for there, 712. So... What that says is that lots of people are building Will Held, right? Or other blue-black or Esper zombie decks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And indeed, if we go look at the top commanders of the week, uh, past month, uh, Will Held's number two. And uh, past week, Will Held, also number two. Yeah, now, yeah. No- notably, it's not Olivia or any of the other vampires from Battle that are getting built. It's Edgar Markov in the past week easily number one at 449 decks so it looks like that's still mm. the preferred vampire commander of choice mm-hmm. yeah he remains popular uh okay my second pick this week i'll try to go a little quicker here is the crop rotations out of double masters crop rotation is in the non-foil specifically crop rotation is in forty-seven thousand eda track decks there are currently 21 vendors with copies of Crop Rotation. It sells three to four copies a week. And what's interesting here, and I noticed this across a lot of the Double Master stuff, there's a lower inventory of non-foil than foil. Um, and I think on Crop Rotation, it's like a two to one ratio. So there's actually not that many non-foil uh, relative to the foil. So 21 vendors and no one has, one guy's got eight and that's it. Other than that, they're pretty low inventory. You're buying these non-foils at about $12. Uh, crop rotation is still remarkably popular in EDH. Like I said, around almost 50,000 decks run it. It's popular to this day. This is a really cool version of the card. I don't see them besting this crop rotation. Um, even if they reprint crop rotation, I think this will remain the coolest looking version. It's got it's a, it's a full art one um, or some version of full art, whatever technical term you want to use for it. It's got a tree walking through. It looks pretty nifty. But it's a really vibrant image on the card. So I don't see a reprint replacing this likely. Uh, you know, snagging these non-foils at $12, I think you're probably shooting for 30 bucks in maybe a year or so. Uh, it could be it could get there in six months. Um, but you know, it's selling three to four weeks, three to four a week, it's certainly possible. But being conservative, I'm looking at late next year. Uh, but yeah, crop rotation, non-foil double masters, 12 to about 25, maybe 30 bucks couple things on this one. The first one to note is that people need to remember that Double Masters did not have collector booster boxes. Double Masters had VIPs, and the VIPs were uh, where you, every VIP pack was about 100 bucks, and you got two foil borderless uh, box toppers. And in regular boxes, I think you got one non-foil. Uh, maybe it was two. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'll double check that. But bottom line lots more of the VIP packs got cracked than the regulars because speculators were gaga for those $100 booster packs. So it ended up that in many cases there was, for a while, an equal or lesser amount of the non-foils, and now that gap is widening over time as you know more and more of the foils from the VIPs filter back into the market, but less and less of the non-foils do. And so that explains that huge gap there. The other thing is this card is because it was printed in Double Masters and the only premium set announced for 2022 is Double Masters 2, very unlikely to catch a reprint there. 
Um, so I would imagine the only thing that it could see a reprint in this year that we know about so far is a secret layer, which it could catch. Like, I mean, there's so many, that's going to be a danger for pretty much every card and every spec, uh, or at least a, a lar- uh, grand majority of them. But I don't see this being any particular, having any particular reason for them to focus on it, given the themes that are announced for sets this year. And so this, this yeah. may well skip a printing of any kind in 2022, which would be very kind to these non-foils that are getting real low. Okay. Glad to hear you uh, You like it as well. Cool. Uh, my final selection is the top commander of the day, Toxrill the Corrosive. Foil showcase versions of this card are about 20 bucks on TCG Player, but over in Europe you can get them for a mere $10 or so, and that seems like a pretty good place to be. I guess you're looking at, yeah, it's it's like seven and a half to eight euros, so it will be about ten dollars if you if you buy them in, in some reasonable quantity, and depending on where you're shipping them to, uh, certainly one of the more annoying things for people that ship to say the UK this year has been that they now have to pay VAT on card market, which is not not funsies. Um, <laughs> uh, not with all vendors though; you just need to look for the little indicator on card market to let you know if that's going to be an issue. But for those of you that are shipping to continental Europe before bouncing to yourselves, uh, you're gonna you're gonna be in in solid position because um, you were always paying that. Bottom line, Toxrel is half the price in Europe that it is in the U.S. It's the top commander of the day. It's a very nasty Geiger-esque looking version of the creature. Um, Ten dollars for a foil mythic commander that's gonna be popular for a while seems pretty well positioned i would imagine that a couple years from now that's going to be a 20 or 30 dollar card pretty easily and if you can snap copies off cheap now you could even arbitrage uh or have backup from ck buy list again for your arbitrage play because they're already offering 10 to 13 on it well that's uh that's good to hear it's always nice when you're you're positioned so well right off the bat with something like that the other thing i like about toxville is that it's not just a commander it may well be the top commander of of the 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 week or whatever but i mean or the or one of the top commanders of the week i think we said it was edgar that was number one toxville's number five um but he's also a 99 card like this is just a good black edh creature that can help clean clean up boards and help you finish the game yeah, that would be my draw here. Is I mean, as a commander, it's that's fine and good, and and uh, sure. But what he seems more interesting to me is just the fact that he's going to get played in decks anyways, without having to necessarily be the commander. So you get not just the boost right now, people putting that commander together, but they will continue to buy copies to put into decks, uh, you know, down the road. Yeah, if you look at something like say a Gishath, Sun's Avatar out of Ixalan. Those foils a few years later are like 40 bucks or something. And that's with a secret mm. layer printing competing. So this seems like the kind of thing that can easily get to 30 or 40. And if you can pick them up in Europe at 10, I don't see how you lose. Yeah. Yep. I can agree completely. It's not even a thematic. The thing is, it's not a thematic card. It doesn't depend on vampires staying popular for the rest of the year. This is just a good card. It's like it's a Nyx Bloom ancient kind of thing in black so yeah yep. right, that's my choice uh okay and i will finish off this week this one is uh admittedly a, a touch less thrilling but i still think it's a good a good card to keep an eye on here mostly because it caught me off guard with how popular it was and i so i thought i'd bring it to everyone else's attention that is uh kolga the titanate 
um, you know, I have marked on here the uh, the non-foil, the borderless copies, I guess, extended art of Kolga the Titan Ape uh, out of Ikoria at $3, which is a lower, you know, low price. We don't typically dabble too low, that quite that low. Um, there's 62 vendors here. Uh, wait, let me just double check that. 35 vendors, sorry, for the uh, borderless, the extended art non-foil copies. But notably, uh, it jumps to over five, over six bucks after like 20, 15, 20 vendors. So you're in for a double up um, <clears throat> after only about 25-ish copies uh, if you go the non-foil route, which I think is, which is a good bet. Uh, and then the foils are in good shape too. The foils are sitting at, let me get that number, right around 10 bucks. There's only 27 vendors of those. Uh, again, no one had, most copies I'm seeing on anyone is three. There's not really a ramp there, which to me means nobody was trying to get too splashy with it. No one expected a lot out of it. Um, they listed them, you know, some of these copies here at like 15 and they were, those are probably what they listed them at when the set came out. But it's in 15,000 EDH rec decks. He's been surprisingly popular more, sorry, 13,000 and 4% since it came out, which is almost one in 20 decks have put Kolgla, the Titan Ape into their green decks have put Kolgla in, which like, I wouldn't have guessed that. And I'm assuming you didn't either, which is why I put this on here. Way, way off uh, my radar. Yeah. Sells multiple copies per day on the non-foils. Uh three more probably more than three copies a week on the foil copies so i think either bet here three bucks for the non-foil extended arts um, or about 10 11 for the foils both will probably pay off in it might it might take over a year on these but i think either way you're going to have a nice solid steady drain here that's going to put you in good position eventually and that has on kogla the titan ape I don't have a counter argument here. I didn't realize this this card was so popular. I've certainly got some sitting around from my Coria collector booster boxes I cracked, so I just would not mind seeing these climb over $20. Um, the card actually does have a lot of relevant text for an EDH game. First of all, six mana in a black in a green deck in a format that has access to soul rings and ancient tombs is not a lot. Kills something when it comes into play. Whenever it attacks, you get to destroy artifacts and enchantments. And a lot of decks can't easily block a 7-6 necessarily, uh, at least profitably. And you don't have to connect to do the destroying. And then you get to bounce humans to your hand, which is kind of a teamer saber-toothy thing uh, to give him indestructible. So you can get real cute with this card. Uh, there's a bunch of different angles to it. Um, it's pretty fun, actually. I should find a deck to put this in and fool around with it, because this is like the kind of EDH I like to play grindy tricksy edh so yeah i can see people being into this and it's also just it's very much a homage to godzilla climbing the tower like all the way back to 1930s godzilla so it's cool mm -hmm. uh king kong yeah sorry king kong close enough i get it uh i probably very easily would have made the same said the same thing they got it all mix, <laughs> mixed up in my head now with the king kong versus godzilla thing yes that's fair enough all right, uh, let's move on here over to, well, segment four with uh, Ed Wynn. Welcome, Ed Wynn, to MTG Fast Finance. Uh, you and I have known each other for a long time. You are the current owner of Vermilion Games and a longtime mainstay of GPs behind a variety of booths and one of the legacy shadow money players we reference every now and then out there operating kind of quietly behind the scenes with uh, 
a lesser social media presence at times. How have you been? Uh, good, good. It's uh, it's nice to talk to you again. It's obviously been a while. We've uh, we've obviously known each other for a while. I've definitely had the pleasure of meeting both of you. Um, so it's definitely nice to catch up. Uh, I know, like you were you, both at my wedding. <laughs> I, I was indeed at your wedding. That was uh, what indeed feels like a lifetime ago. Um, that does feel like it, a it, while it, ago. you're telling me. Yeah, it is indeed nice to uh, catch up with both of you again. It certainly feels like it's been a little too long. So it's uh, I appreciate you guys uh, both having me here. Yeah, we've been trying to schedule this actually for God months, months and months, and it just feels like there's we always just miss each other. You're busy one week, or you're on the road, or like we have a set review that we need to touch on because that stuff is is so timely. Like it's like oh the the set dropped. Like we should talk about it this week because by next week nobody will care. Uh, and of course, I'm glad of course, lately there's a lot of secret layers that tend to take up our time <laughs> talking oh, about God. constantly. But there's there's always this this kind of reserve pool of sharp sharp minds out there in the magic finance community. A lot of whom, as you said, don't don't aren't at the forefront of a lot of the discussion that goes on. Often to the detriment of the community, because folks like Ed have a lot to add, and uh, certainly happy to have his voice join us here. Of course, what we're doing tonight is we're at episode 300, so we're doing a bit of a retrospective on MTG Finance for the last uh, half decade or so. I guess it's technically, as we said earlier, been six years, but that we've been doing the cast, and I think Travis and I have probably been around for at least 10. I suspect Ed's like at least that much. But uh, yeah, a lot has changed in uh, in the last half decade or so, and in the decade as a whole, and of course some things have stayed the same, but... So many different things we can we can dive in on here. I guess maybe we could off the off the top, maybe tackle one of the more contentious issues in the collectible space, and certainly one that has been making its mark again lately. Ed, can you tell us a little bit about your you know your viewpoint on the interaction between crypto and collectibles over say the last five years or so? Yeah. So um, so. Crypto, obviously, referencing cryptocurrency. That's one of the things that has really started to come to prominence, especially as of late. Um, in the in the past, I want to say probably twelve months or so, is kind of when crypto has really started to become mainstream. Um, I I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I may have been one of the first uh, people that widely made this uh widely made crypto for collectibles a thing um i remember i had posted i think i want to say it was back in 2017 or so i had started to make a facebook post on the high-end group it was just for a small log cards but um a lot of things at the time i was trying to popularize uh the concept of just using crypto as any other conventional currency and using it to purchase collectibles um and I remember this was one, of the, and at, at that point when I had made that post, this is when I actually did a lot more sales on Facebook. Um, I had explicitly mentioned in my post that I was only accepting cryptocurrency for my cards, um, and that obviously was a huge blow up at the time. Uh, <laughs> I like I, I, I like I'm I'm sure I can go back and dig it up. But I remember there were a lot of comments about like people were saying it's a scam. There were moderators involved, um, and for people who post on the high end groups, like you like moderators almost rarely ever get involved in things mainly because it's if your rules if, if your post breaks the rules they're just not going to accept your post you're they're just going to deny it they're going to say you need to add prices you need to add scans yada yada um they rarely ever actually interact with posts so to have moderators like kind of jump in and really kind of uh 
put a break on people just like spewing out all this unrelated, like completely unrelated things. People are like, what's crypto? <laughs> this is a scam. Why don't you just like, why can't we just pay you? Um, and then you buy the crypto, all these things. But um, <laughs> right. Like this was like, I, I, again, not to toot my own horn, but I, I want to say I was one of the first people that really kind of got this going. And then yeah. um, I, this I was 2017, I, right? I can't, this remember, was... I can't remember if I saw that post it rings a bell and, and it's from the era when I unloaded my unlimited Lotus for crypto. So it may well have had an influence on me at the time. And it's funny because that, that group get tends to get pretty heated. There's a lot of egos in the high end group. Absolutely. And, a lot of money. And Absolutely. <laughs> it's not going to be any less intense when you're dumping like crypto requests in, in, you know, five years ago. Right. So again, like, you know, it, it seems like kind of a silly concept now, but you guys, like you guys have to remember the people listening that, this was like I want to say probably 2017, 2016, 2017, right? Crypto like, like the bull run, right? The first bull run. Yeah, crypto. This is like before crypto had really started to take off. Like this was when I was like definitely getting in good um, with some of those things. Um, like we'd never really seen anything take off in large capacity. Um, so like, like this was again a pretty foreign concept at the time. Now. Uh, you know, if we kind of fast forward today, kind of the past 18 months, crypto continues to hit record highs, uh, right? Ethereum trades well over 4K, Bitcoin trades over 60K. Uh, we've seen a lot of meme coins that were just complete jokes at the time. But I guess like, you know, when you're the wealthiest man in the world and you post on Twitter constantly, right? Like your words will just cause random meme coins to explode for no reason. Yeah, um, Elon and Dogecoin uh, and whatever. Yep, so... Right, but, like, I think the prevalence of it now is, like, crypto, especially people who got rich on crypto, if you think the type of demographic that has done well, um, you know, you can kind of use me as an example, right, I'm just kind of a, um, I'm a millennial who is looking for the next big thing, I got in early, it paid well, um, right, like, these these are kind of the similar age types, the similar age demographic that would be into, yeah. that would be into crypto, and it, and the Venn diagram between someone who buys into crypto and who's looking for these kind of non-traditional investments and the type of person that would be into collectibles, into magic, into sports cards, into Pokemon, etc. Um, there's going to be a substantial overlap in that Venn diagram. It's just, it's just a circle. Right. It's like it's like virtually like a, a circle with 100% overlap, right? Um, so, so, if we, so, so if we fast forward five years to now, there's probably two major forks. Uh, along the conversation path of influence of crypto. One of them is what you've already referred to, which is the the increased frequency and acceptance of conducting transactions in crypto. Like, would you say that like, on a GP floor, if you step up to a booth of like educated folk, like say Tales of Adventure, and you're behind the booth and other smart people are back there, can a crypto deal get done? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I want to say it's one of those things that it absolutely never hurts to ask, right? Um Again, as just mentioned, right, this is the type of demographic that is more inclined to be in the crypto space. Um, and just kind of as a point of reference, we had someone, uh, without getting into too much details, um, at at uh, Magic Event Las Vegas, um, for lack of a better word. Um, they had approached the booth on Saturday, and they had they asked us to reserve five-plus pieces of power, uh, and then they said that they were going to try and... Um, either uh, pay us directly via crypto or go look to cash out some crypto and then just bring us the cash instead. Uh, this was something that happened in the booth. This is something that happens at events frequently. 
Um, we have been both asked to pay people in crypto if we have any holdings in various coins. Uh, people have been wanting to accept that for their cards. And then on the flip side, there's also people who are wanting to pay directly with crypto if we're accepting of, you know, whatever coins they have. And that's something that it comes up more than once a show um, on, on, bo- on both sides, mm. on, on both sides of the coin. Um, gotcha. So it's not something that is completely unfound of. So then for- that's frequent. So then for you mm-hmm. personally, like say you're holding a $20,000 card and okay. somebody wants to pay you in Bitcoin. Are 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 you are you primarily looking at, you know, did Bitcoin just pump? <laughs> like, are you pay, are, are you are you just like I'll take Bitcoin on any given day, or do you are you like well, Bitcoin's at a local low, so I'll take Bitcoin, but otherwise I'm not as interested in the deal. Um, I think there are so for me and my per, uh, business, like, um, the perspective I have is that I don't actively trade in bitcoin unless it's going to be or in crypto unless it's going to be a five-figure deal or unless i'm looking to move holdings unless i'm trying to get a lot of coins for a specific reason uh there are some altcoins that i've uh i've certainly taken a liking to that you actually can't buy with currency you can't just go into coinbase and charge your bank account or charge your credit card and buy this coin the only way you can actually buy some of these coins is by using an exchange that allows the transactions of these coins so you're trading one of these coins for a different coin. Right. Um, so if you wanted 20K in Ethereum because you had a project that you, an investment project you were working on, you might be more, more inclined. The, yes. The price, the price was, uh, the, 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 the price is largely material. Um, a lot of crypto, I think in my mind is kind of a long-term hold. Um, it's done pretty well for me having held it as long as I have. Um, I'm not really looking to cash out anytime soon. I've held it through, uh, mostly spikes and I'm still holding it. So um, I, I think the price is immaterial, but I think there are some people who may have gone in recently. Um, I know that uh, someone who is potentially looking to pay with crypto in, in Vegas kind of balked because I think the Saturday of Vegas, or maybe it was a Friday, um, they were looking to pay an Ethereum and Ethereum had taken probably a, I want to say like an 8% dip that day. So they basically, yeah, so they like, so they were like all set to do this. And they kind of looked at this and they kind of like, this is, this is just going to cost me 10% more or something. I'm probably going to reconsider. Uh, and, and, and it's, it, and it's so, so funny how that like price fixation sets in when the week before, if Ethereum had been 20% lower and it had gone up, they wouldn't have felt like they were getting an especially good deal necessarily. Right, right. They still, they still um, would have evaluated at the spot price on the day. Um, right, right. So I think that's funny. Now, of course, the other angle here is the crypto money flowing into collectibles as a whole, not just magic, but the entire collectibles industry. So sports cards, sports memorabilia, NFTs, um, uh, Pokemon, etc. And, and the confluence of that occurring during COVID, where a lot of people thought that the collectibles industry was going to be in big trouble. And in fact, the opposite proved to be true. And I think you probably agree with us here that 2021, you know, ended up being a much bigger year um, than a lot of people anticipated. And there's a lot of these, you know, stories and questions around, you know, how much of that comes from crypto flowing into COVID as a, I mean, it's not into COVID, but during COVID into collectibles as a safe haven from the tax man. In the, in the sense that you can get into a $100,000 Jordan card or whatever, and that is just an invisible transaction that nobody can track. Yeah, I, I think, like, um, for the for the sake of transparency, 
transparency, I'm not advocating that anyone use uh, crypto as a tax haven in any form. Um, the IRS obviously has made <laughs> you know pretty substantial regulations. I imagine most governments have made enough. But it, I, cryptocurrency has really moved forward enough in the mainstream, right? That it's no longer one of those things where. You know, if we, you know, we just kind of, you know, take a look back over our shoulders five years ago, right? Like, what was crypto? Crypto was something like the Silk Road. That was one of the things yeah. that was kind of in the forefront of people's mind, like money laundering, um, drug money, right? Uh, the dark web. These were all things that were a little bit more mainstream for crypto. And that was really how the majority of people have, have, have kind of perceived crypto, right? It's just kind of like just this fake, um, immaterial money that floats around on the internet right um i forgot that every time i talk to you everything is alleged and has disclaimers <laughs> so, such a such a legal framework I mean, i'm not looking to get sued i'm not looking for someone to like take what i say literally and then just you know go spend hundred thousand dollars on crypto and then think that they can somehow hide it from, from well, i mean any... we're, we're, we're certainly not yeah. speaking to the success of those right. efforts all i'm looking to establish right. is that there is a trend line where people have there is probably some degree of crypto that has flowed into collectibles as an attempt at tax havens. Correct, correct. I think that's one of those things. And um and there's there's some overlap. It's not necessarily just tax havens, right? It's more of um just people looking to part their money and just kind of diversifying the investments. Because when we talk about MTG finance on a very macro level, kind of that's really what we're looking for. On a small level, right, you could be thinking about you know, maybe your more casual F and Mer might just be thinking, "What can I buy? What can I find in Crimson Vow that may be underpriced now that may be help me to play standard for the next six months?" Right, like on on small level, but on a ultimately macro level, right? MTG Finance is really about looking at long term investments in this collectible space because that that that's really the underlying principle that guides most trading card games, most collectible markets is that there's some level of scarcity and there is some level of long-term investing that goes into this. I mean, I think we can both probably agree as well that the, the influence of crypto on the magic space specifically is outsized on the high end of the market compared to standard rares. Like nobody's, nobody's trading Bitcoin for $4 standard rares, but lots of black lotuses and power nine have been, have exchanged hands with crypto on one side of the transaction. Yeah, correct. Uh, like, I think, like, it's one of those things where, um, right, like, anyone who got into crypto, you know, that's been in crypto for any reasonable amount of time, uh, they're not they're not buying, like, you know, most people who are buying crypto, they're not buying, like, $10 of crypto at a time, they're probably buying, like, $10,000 of crypto at a time. Um, and I think, like, you know, just kind of the nature of people's wallets, um, it's one of those transactions that also happens much more flawlessly, right? It's, a lot, it's relatively painless to rather than pay someone like you know twenty thousand dollars for black lotus or something right that's a lot of money to handle whereas a bitcoin transaction and crypto transaction happens relatively seamlessly without too much effort um so again that's i i think you do kind of see the higher um the kind of the top end of the market especially for collectibles across the board really gravitate uh more heavily into the crypto space well i mean that right there is a good point because having to carry twenty thousand dollars in cash is really obnoxious i i I would imagine uh whereas uh you know carrying crypto through you know airports and what have you is is much much safer um you know when we've obviously seen a real big boom in crypto there was a big bull run on bitcoin back in like 2017 
and it quieted down for a while. And then, you know, right around the time COVID was hitting, it was crypto in general was was hitting real hard. Um, you know, Bitcoin's at, I don't know, what is it like 60 grand right now? And it's been floating around there for a while. Uh, and NFTs have, have kicked off really in the last two or three months. But do you, and th- this has had, a, had an outsized impact on, you know, high-end collectibles and so not just magic, but like all collectible inv- uh, spaces, I would imagine, have been heavily influenced by essentially almost overnight young, unorthodox people becoming rich off crypto. Do you foresee a continued growth in the crypto space such that it continues to boost collectible markets in the way that it has? Or do you kind of imagine that maybe there's going to be a bit of a drawback in explosion and that will cool off a lot of the the bigger movement in the collectible markets as a whole? Uh so, so that's a pretty big question as a whole. Um, I think to like if we kind of break it down step by step. Like me myself, I'm a believer in the technology and some of the underlying principles that uh, cryptocurrency has to offer. I'm a big fan of uh, blockchain technology, right? All these things I think are very valuable tools that are only going to become more and more mainstream. Uh, we've started to see a wider acceptance, or you know, countries that accept crypto. At like if we kind of look at. Um, We'll say is it El Salvador, right? Like these countries that have really made it mainstream. Uh, we have, you know, we don't. It, it's it's not one of those things that just becomes, you know, kind of that, you know, weird, um, weird internet money thing anymore. The fact that it's become so mainstream, I think, means that crypto, in my mind, has more has more growth in the future, especially as it's one of those things that becomes accepted by more and more. Um, by more and more companies, by more and more merchants, um, as it becomes easier for people to transact, it's going to be one of those things that continues to grow. I mean, what happens if we make an announce? If we hear an announcement all of a sudden that Amazon is going to actively start accepting crypto and transacting crypto, and they have positions in crypto, uh, what happens? What happens uh, crypto then? Um, sure. Right, like the, the like this this. I think this the sky really is the limit when it comes to crypto. I think we're only looking at it in its infancy. And I would argue the closest real-world analogy that most of us can relate to is for those of us who grew up playing Magic and played Magic, you know, in the cafeteria in middle school, and we were kind of ostracized as like those weird nerdy kids um, that played with their that played with their cards or whatever. Um, now we forward, you know, I mean, I was in high school and I graduated in two thousand seven, right? I was fourteen, so we're talking like fifteen plus years ago. Um, nowadays, right? It's playing cards is not really something that is odd anymore. It's one of those things where even your, your most jockey of jocks, right? They, I imagine most jocks like still play video games. They still play computer games. Most of them have game consoles, right? These, th- these things that we kind of ostracized before are now mainstream. And I think crypto has barely started to scratch, slowly becoming mainstream, being coming accepted by more and more people. And to kind of tie back to what your initial question was, I think, as crypto continues to grow, there will always be a percentage of the high-end market that will always have its value indirectly tied to crypto in the sense that as crypto grows, we'll kind of see a boom cycle where crypto booms, people are wanting to move out of crypto because they made their X percent on crypto and now they're looking to diversify and now all of a sudden, hey, we haven't seen magic singles caught up yet. We haven't seen power caught up yet. We haven't seen duels caught up yet. 
let's drop a bunch of money on on power uh and wait and it'll just naturally spike um and i think like this is something that we've seen in the past we see this falling booms in 2017 we've seen it fall in the boom i think in 2018 we saw it following the boom last year right these are things that have happened before and i don't think it's unreasonable for these types of trends to happen again in the future yeah, that that's mm. the point I was getting at was the, you know, like, say you guys are on the floor at Vegas and you hear about a big crypto crash. Would that have some impact on your willingness to go deep on power? Um, I don't think so. I think I think um, I think high end magic cards. Um, if we if we kind of look at economics here, I think high end magic cards, We when we talk about power and I, we talk about black lotuses. They really fall under the concepts that most people probably understand as a Veblen good. Uh, for those people who don't know, uh, who aren't super familiar with economics, right? Thorstein Veblen, he uh, introduced this concept of Veblen goods as anything where the um, the value of the good is basically tied directly into how scarce it is. And the fact that it is likely going to increase in demand as the price increases. Um, right. And, right, and this is like this is one of those things where um, I, I I think collectibles as a whole kind of falls in that concept. But when you kind of talk about black lotuses, when you talk about you know a lot of a, a lot of like blue chip pieces such as like a first edition base set Charizard, right? These things, as the price for it continues to go up, right? Black lotuses have continued to uh, creep up. Duels have continued to creep up. All these things have continued to creep up. Demand for it doesn't actually go down. The people playing them in decks, the people playing them in uh, legacy formats, EDH formats, might go down. But there, it, but there's zero indication that demand for them, the amount of people wanting to buy them, actually goes down. Got it. So during when we talk about you know looking at this retrospect over the last half decade or so, and specifically you know the last half of it is the COVID era, and we all know that there's been a huge pump across the board in collectibles. Um, have you, are, do you have your fingers in some of those other spaces? Are you into sports cards or Pokemon or anything like that? Yeah. Um, magic is actually one of the things that I've, um, kind of moved away from. I think I have a, I have a relatively bleak outlook in terms of like what magic looks like long-term. I think a lot of the short-term things they're doing, which, uh, which maybe we, we may or may not talk about later. Um, I think like a lot of the secret layers, uh, I kind of question some of the decisions that they make. Uh, so I've actually, uh, yes, I have like diversified. I've started doing more sports cards, um, sports cards, Pokemon, uh, things that just generally have a much wider demographic. And it's what I would say would be an easier sell to people. Um, because when you, you know, when you think about things like sports, I, of course, everyone's heard about sports. Uh, do people necessarily need to know like name players? Probably not, but like understanding the concept of sports as a whole, it's a bigger market. Same with Pokemon. The Pokemon franchise just has... There's a lot more eyeballs on it. There's just a much wider demographic than what Magic has. Yeah, I mean, um, po- Pokemon's number one entertainment brand on the planet at this point. Yep, yep. Big, um, big, bigger than think, Disney, bigger than Marvel. Yeah, bigger than Disney, bigger than Marvel, bigger than Star Wars, right? All these things that we think that do very well, um, they're actually just kind of... They just kind of pale in comparison to Pokemon, which is really absurd to think about. But um, when you kind of... When you kind of when you kind of measure it out, measure it out that way, it becomes it becomes much easier to understand why Pokemon has really seen the market explosion that it has over the past you know twelve months. So, can you speak to us a little bit about what you've seen in those markets, sports cards and Pokemon specifically? You know, both before and after COVID, and how you think things have changed and where we're at right now. 
Yeah, I mean, having done Pokemon for a little while, um, it, it's just very abundantly clear that I, I think one of the fundamental issues with Magic, and I think it kind of puts a relatively lower uh, market cap on Magic as as an investment vehicle as a whole, is that a lot of Magic is directly tied to its utility, right? Like, why is, why is objectively, why is Black Lotus so expensive? Scarcity, that's a big part of it, but... You could argue that most people see it as, like, the most powerful card in Magic if you, you just kind of at, look at it as a blanket statement. The fact that Black Lotus is... The fact that the price of Black Lotus is tied to its utility, how powerful it is in the game, even though we may get to a point where there's no one shuffling up vintage decks anymore, that is really what gives Black Lotus its price. If you kind of shift that to Pokemon, you kind of shift that to sports cards, somewhere out there... Right, like each each and every Pokemon is each and every Pokemon is someone's is someone's it's someone's favorite. Um, it doesn't matter how bad it is, it doesn't matter how obscure it is. Same for sports cards, it doesn't matter how how bad a team is. Someone out there likes teams, right? Like I can sympathize, right? I'm a, I've been a Mariners fan, living in the Pacific Northwest for a long, very long time. <laughs> Seattle Mariners have not won a World Series, and I would be ecstatic if they won the World Series in my lifetime. Um. Right, but like somewhere out there, someone will always like some Pokemon, someone will always like some sports team, and that just completely changes that market, because you're now selling things, because you don't ever have dead cards, you don't ever have bad cards the way Magic does, um, because you're always going to be able to make that sale to someone somewhere, and I think that is one of the one of the things that completely blew my mind when I started to, to move into those spaces more and more. You're saying that you have a stronger character-driven brand, and as a result, you can move a card that may not be playable at a tournament level, but if it has a premium version, it may st- well still be profitable, even though no one's tabling the card anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, re- it's go ahead. It's almost like the primary mover. It sounds like of of these of Pokemon is essentially Worthos players, in- which is a- an alien concept in Magic. It is a very it is a very alien concept in Magic, right? But like um. It, like having you know sold a lot of cards because always like when I when I sell cards um, especially at events um, you know part of it's being a good salesman right same with selling magic like oh what are you going to use you know um, do you have a deck in mind for this so and so legend same with Pokemon like you know like what's about this card that intrigues you and a lot of times overwhelmingly people's response is that I like the art or this is my favorite Pokemon. I'm here to pull out every single one of the copies of this Pokemon you have in your box or something. Um, and that's really something that's really something that drives these things. Um, like I know on like sports cards, for example, a lot of sports slots do really well because you have people. Um, so just a very, you know, brief overlook uh, into sports cards there. They release a lot of sets. If we thought magic released a lot of sets this year with a lot of <laughs> yeah. new cards, the amount of sets that, like, Tops, Panini, right, these top companies that produce sports cards, we're talking, like, 80 sets a year, like, 50 to 80 sets a year. Granted, a lot of them are small, like right? A lot of them are, like... More than one a week. <laughs> a lot of them are, like, a lot A lot of them are like a lot smaller, right? A lot of them are kind of fixed items, kind of things, like, think of a commander deck, you buy a product that has kind of fixed sets. Um, but there are people, for example, if I were to buy a booster, a hobby box, whatever, from a particular um, set that came out, there are going to be people that only want 
you know, me, for example, the Seattle Mariners cards from that set. They have no interest in anything else. They just want the Seattle Mariners cards from that set. And people are people are opening up these products in mass, and they're basically sorting them by all the teams. They're obviously pulling out the money cards, you know, the top refractors, the numbered cards, the serial numbered cards, etc. Pulling them out and selling them individually, but all the so and so bulk can be broken down by individual teams and then sold off in lots to people who, again, only have an interest in collecting the Mariners from that year or this year the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. I'm sure those lots for that just contain Atlanta Braves cards probably see an increase in demand because people want, this was the year that the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. I have every card from this set for that year. And that's interesting because um, it's kind of like a color-based box break that you've seen some Magic vendors doing over the last few years, which was clearly borrowed from that concept on the sports channels where they would do the breaks based on teams. And they, the thing that's nice there from a reliability of retail uh uh, result perspective is as you said i love such and such a team so it doesn't really matter how good the team is that year it doesn't really matter how many of those players are the best players or the hottest rookies i'm still i still need my set of that team because i collect that that brand of cards that set and i get the team every year so i'm i'm gonna buy my break no matter what yeah absolutely i, I think like the um like you, like you mentioned, uh, a lot of people have kind of adopted that from kind of the, the sports breaks that we see where people are, you know, a break is basically people opening up a booster box and divvying it up. Uh, the most common one for Magic is you have, was it, eight, eight people? It might be a little bit less, but you have the five colors, uh, gold, artifact, lands. You probably have, like, gold, artifact, lands I've seen it kind of grouped together before, but people, you randomly get assigned one of each color a box gets opened up or whatever, and then all the white cards go to the person that was randomly given white, all the blue cards randomly give a person blue, etc. Um, and, and that's something that's like a, lo- a little less prevalent in Magic, right? But in sports cards, that's a bigger thing, but well, the, of course, that's the closest analog we would have. Yeah, and of course the reason that that's less satisfying a lot of the time for the box breakers or the reason it feels more risky um, and probably impacts how many people are willing to participate is that it's very much equivalent to opening booster packs you're not guaranteed to get the cards you're looking for whereas with the box break if you sign up to get the mets you know what you're getting you know what's in the set there's no surprises it's not like you're going to get a random cool extra cool mets card they're just going to give you the Mets set and congrats you got it and you paid the price for it thanks and you're going to be 100 happy because you signed up knowing what you were getting so away you go yeah, and I think kind of the like close analog is that, right, like I imagine that there's probably going to be a relatively small set of people out there that only wants white cards because they only play mono white in every format sure. or in like, you know, like sure, you may play white in Legacy and Death and Taxes, for example, but unless you only also only play white mono white decks in EDH or something, right, you probably want diversify, you probably want more than just your spread of whatever one color you get for a box break. So I think that appeal, like that's part of the problem that it hasn't really broken into magic and is not quite as prevalent as in sports, but it's definitely out there. If you want, if you want to go look for these breaks, um, there are definitely options out there that will, uh, there are websites that'll do box breaks for you for magic. So on the sports card scene, one of the things that struck me going back a few years was how they managed to pull themselves up out of a fairly terrible situation by approaching the premium side of the market. And all of a sudden we start seeing these multi-hundred up into thousand, multi-thousand dollar sets being released that are ultra-limited quantity. 
that have very like super ridiculous premium cards available. It's like a, a cut out of a piece of a guy's jersey that's in an extra thick foam card that people are you know hoping to get a one of a five signature of and then send it off for grading. Um, what is it like participating in that portion of the market, and how do you see? Uh, to what degree do you believe that that has influenced the advent of the booster fund program at Wizards and their attempt to approach the premium market within their their own demographic? Uh, for those of you that followed me on Twitter, I think I kind of spoke out to this very, very briefly um, when we first saw uh, SCG post the, was it, number 777 this year, I think? That was the first one. Yeah, um, something the like secret, that. Secret layer, one of a hundreds, yeah. Yeah, the for anyone who's been living under a rock, right? The there's numbered viscous years. They're printed backwards, so the entire card is backwards. And then there's actually a gold stamp where we would normally see the pre-release stamp, and it just says number X out of one hundred. Um, this is clearly one of those things that's borrowed from sports cards. I mentioned that sports cards have done this for a very long time. We see a lot of uh, premium type cards that appear on all levels, right? Refractors are just kind of your your most basic form of uh, foiling as it were the, we have cards that are numbered anywhere from out of 100 all the way down to numbered one of one there are cards and there are sports cards that are number quite literally numbered one out of one there's one card of that in the entire print run um oh, right sure. and then as you kind of described um there's cards that do contain uh game use patches which means that they literally cut out a piece of that player's uniform that was used in a certain game um and they actually embed it onto a card. It's kind of a thicker foam card. Um, that's actually the real use for thick top loaders, if anyone's ever gotten them. They're not actually meant for stuffing, like, 20 magic cards in there. They're actually meant for some of these cards that are substantially thicker because they do have, you know, oh, man. a game patch or I, a bat or something. How long until we see magic cards that have one of Rosewater's superhero shirts that have been chopped up and stuck <laughs> on 100 of them? And I, he's, even got, he's even got his own personal jersey brand going. I, I think that's actually one of the things that's very interesting, right? Like it, it seems it, it seems far fetched, right? But this is one of the things that I think it, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's what's upsetting. Well, well about we got, it. We, got <laughs> we we just got a big step closer because we got the Gavin Verhey bespoke commander deck that he that he had yeah, that he had yeah. a personalized hand in. But I also think this circles back to the point that Ed made earlier about the weakness of uh, narrative characteristics uh, as they pertain to magic. And, and it comes from a couple different places. A, they haven't done a great job of getting the uh, narrative out in the public. We're going on it being a 30-year brand. And the funny thing is, if the brand had launched in the mid-80s, it would have 100% had a Saturday morning cartoon alongside it. And that would have driven a massive amount of sales and nostalgia down the road. And when you look at something like Pokemon, one of the reasons it became the top entertainment brand on the planet was because they managed to marry three major arms of uh, of retail together. They've got a video game franchise that's extremely successful and continues to be that transitioned successfully into the mobile era. They've got uh, a massive card game that's one of the most popular of all time, and that continues to be majorly successful. And then they've got a uh, uh, accessories, plush, uh, apparel, you know, the the um, personal goods side of that brand super dialed like with it hitting on every price point at every level of retail from you know walmart's two dollar aisle up to gucci at 
you know, the a collab for a $5,000 like leather Pokemon jacket or whatever. And because Hasbro is this kind of old school licensing manufacturer of kids toys from the 80s, they, they have had a lot of trouble setting trends as opposed to chasing them. And I can very much see where, you know, what you're getting at, Ed, with, with those comments. And, and I think that that ties into this thing with Rosewater. Like, does Rosewater have a cult of personality? Yes. Is that a mainstream thing where your aunt is, has heard about it? No, it's not. But she's probably heard of Pikachu. Yeah, like, definitely, right? Like, you know, to kind of, you know, backtrack, like, what you said, like, Pokemon has really kind of married everything that makes it so successful at retail, um, right? Like, how many people, if we kind of throw back to 2016, how many people rediscovered Pokemon again for the sake of Pokemon Go, right? How many people picked up Pokemon Go not actually knowing what Pokemon was, but they simply use it as an excuse for them to get out more and to exercise more and just walk around and it was something simply something for them to play while they're walking around um and i think that's one of the things that pokemon does phenomenally right like if you actually look at the i believe uh they shared the breakdown for the pokemon franchise a few years ago and one of the things that was actually surprising is that we normally associate pokemon with the trading card game but the trading card game is actually one of the, like the like the smallest parts of its overall sales. If you go to like the Pokemon Center website right now, you know, they're selling literally everything except for Pokemon cards and Pokemon cards are kind of there as kind of an afterthought, right? People are like, they're selling like apparel, they're selling plushies, they're selling various like home related goods, they're selling figures, they're selling pins, all these things, right? That people are buying simply because they like Pokemon and not actually, like they don't actually care about the game itself, right? Like the fact that, you know, they just came out as a Switch game. Uh, it's a remake. It's, uh, was it Pearl, Diamond Pearl? It's a remake, but people are still excited to play it. But again, like these types of more competitive the outlets, the video game, the train card game, still an afterthought versus how excited people are about the brand itself. And like you mentioned, uh, like Mark Rosewater, like does he have a presence? Sure. Is he one of the things that people know about in Magic as a character? Absolutely, but I just don't think he has kind of the same level of this is cool for lack of a better word that you know um, that that like you you can't translate that in Magic the way that you know a piece of a game used bat on a baseball card or you know a piece of turf or something on a card um, has the same excitement for someone who you know would be a a fan of a particular player of a particular team. Um, I think sports cards definitely captures that really well. Yeah. You can't, you can't compare a guy who was a writer on Roseanne in the mid eighties to Pikachu or Wade Boggs or whatever. Like the, it's a totally different thing. And part of the problem is that again, they, they, it's been 30 years and we don't have a cartoon or a movie and it, and it, and it, and if, and it, a lot of properties have gotten to market with entertainment at that level without having anywhere near the retail sales that magic has. So you, you have to lay that at Hasbro's feet as a colossal failure. They, they clearly tried, right? I mean, I feel like that was kind of the appeal of where they went with planeswalkers was let's see if we can establish some identities that can be bigger than, you know, one character, two characters for a brief period of time. Right. And, and build that brand. But, and those identities and they just it just didn't take off people didn't latch on to them 
the way that you've seen with Pokemon and what have you. And well, I, I mean, they, I didn't, they didn't latch onto them, though, where, because they, they haven't produced them in media. And when we say that they've tried, keep in mind that the, the core problem here is that Hasbro won't throw enough money at these things to get them off the ground. Like, that, yeah, like once yeah. we see this Netflix, this Netflix series launch, we'll have a better sense of it. And we'll be able to compare it to, for instance, Arcane, the League of Legends thing that launched to great acclaim this month, and get a sense of, you know, where things land. Because Arcane, they, some money was spent on Arcane. Like, I, I heard rumors that, like, there were some people that worked on Arcane that weren't paid well enough. But they, even if you put the money aside, talent was assigned to Arcane. And sometimes you can have a combination of money and, you know, you can pull the, the levers for money and talent. And as long as one of those is pushed close to the max, you're going to do very well. And that's exactly what happened with Arcane. I like that you actually brought up Arcane. Um, it, like I, I think like Arcane is one of those things that's really kind of been able to bridge the gap between something that is not mainstream into making it mainstream. And I think that's like the biggest struggle. Like Magic, like clearly struggles with it, right? But um, if we look at League of Legends and Arcane, right? League of Legends, it's like a pretty big esports. It's like it's one of the, I think like one of the most top played games in the world, just in terms of. Uh, if we use Twitch as a metric, just how many people are streaming, how many people are watching it, it's definitely one of the top. And the fact that they've made it into a very, very successful animated uh, show, right, is, again, just... And it's bringing in people who are not necessarily attached to the game itself. Um, and then we take that one step further, and now we have the secret lair with Arcane, right, that's making uh, kind of that um, collab. And that's one of the things that I think is... Um, has done really well. Um, this was something that was much less common uh, a little while ago, but now we start to see collabs for literally everything, right? I don't know if, um, mm -hmm. right? Like, I think like one of the more insane ones is uh, uh, Microsoft did a collab with Gucci. There's actually a Gucci Xbox, um, Xbox Series X, huh. right? There's like one of a 100 or something and retails for $10,000. Um <laughs> Right, that, I heard there was even there was even a mischief axe magic crossover. Right, right, and these are all things. <laughs> these are all things that um, I think it's I think it's absolutely genius for these companies to be doing it. Um, and I think that, like that's really like how they're expanding their reach, right? Like how many people, um, right? Like if we look at it from Magic's perspective, right? How many people play League of Legends that? Um, that don't already play magic there's probably a reasonable amount right but it's probably not reasonable to think that with this exposure you may have people that who play league of legends maybe getting into arena and then if they play arena and they like it from there they may be able to start looking at getting into, into the local game store and start playing paper magic um i think that's like one of the things that these companies are really doing well um granted some of these uh some of these are kind of weird um but I think I think there's definitely a huge, huge retail angle that these companies can get themselves into if they're able to execute on these correctly. I think the the main differentiator though is you can be the company that launched Arcane, or you can be the company that begged off a collab for where you slapped Arcane on your own product without really a whole lot of thought. And Hasbro tends to do the latter, not the former. And, you know, maybe that will change once we get the Netflix show. Maybe it'll be great. And I think everybody hopes that will be the case. But even, a, you know, even one good show on Netflix for Magic wouldn't get us into the heart of the mainstream unless it was absolutely stellar. Which I, and I suspect it's going to be very medium. 
the you know what they really need is to figure out how to get hollywood movies made around their properties or an hbo 10 part series or an amazon 10 part series or you know netflix throws money at almost anybody so the fact that it's taken this long to get anything on the docket that still hasn't actually you know we don't have a solid launch date or anything is pretty amazing and really speaks to hasbro's weakness on on the media and marketing side of things now i also think this this plays into one of the other subjects that we can tackle which is the advent of the booster fund program where starting with eh, around Throne of Eldrain, arguably, or you can go back to the Mythic Editions. You can even go all the way back to FDVs if you really want to, to kind of understand the roots of it, where we have Watsy slash Hasbro looking at what's happening, probably in the sports card market, um, probably in the video game market, where premium versions of products were being released for major multipliers, and thinking to themselves, you know, we might have trouble expanding our player base much further. You know, they went through major, major gains in the player base coming out of the last recession. So we're looking at like 2008 to 2011, uh, doing pretty well during that recession as well. And then coming, you know, from 2010 to 2020, arguably doubling or tripling the overall player base worldwide, uh, at least in part, probably on the back of the advent of Commander as a format. Um but then you get the sense from the way that they've explained things in investor conferences and so forth over the last few years that they're much more focused on ARPU, like average revenue per user, as opposed to growing the user base. And I think that's probably because they've come up against a ceiling where they don't know what to do to push further the game further into the mainstream, in part probably because the game has a high degree of complexity and, you know, when Ed was making the comments earlier about utility, a lot of that is rooted in, you know, uh, the, the game, the value of game pieces being utilitarian is rooted in an understanding of the game. If you have a game where understanding the game is important to enjoying the game, then, and you don't have media properties to back that property, the, that brand, then you're in a situation where utilitarianism is going to have some major fact, like, uh, be a big part of your retail environment. And maybe, Ed, you can comment to us on like what has changed in the last five years as Wizards has shifted to premium. How is, say, buying on the floor at a GP different? Uh, do you, is, is it a different animal now that we're in this era? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think if you look at um, kind of, if you were to imagine magic as an index, the same way you would think of, you know, a, a, a stock index or something. Uh, it, you kind of break it down into standard, into modern, into legacy, EDH, vintage, etc. These indexes actually have all grown, with the exception of standard. Um, if anything, standard has probably become cheaper to play as time's gone on. And I think this really kind of goes back to, oddly enough, 2016. We keep coming back to a year for some reason. Maybe, like, we can start... Mm -hmm. Maybe Magic can bottle, like, a wine or something and say this was... A, I don't know. This was age starting in 2016, and 16 will be kind of the premium vintage year down the line. Like, something happened that year. I'm having trouble putting my finger on it. I don't know. Probably not worth considering. Um, <laughs> Nothing big happened then. Right, but one of the... Uh, one of the things, right, that was 2016, right, if we think what happened in the Magic space in 2016... That was the full set, Battle for Zendikar. That was really Wizards' first introduction into 
the premium product, right? Battle for Zendikar had the original, original masterpieces, right? These were the expeditions that they unveiled at PAX West, right? These were something like, it was like one per three boxes, two per case. And that really started kind of Wizards down this path of creating a more and more premium product, like you had mentioned. And I think this was a big kind of either appeal to... Um, kind of their appeal to high-end collectors. Because prior to that, right, Magic... Again, Magic really comes down to utility. How much play value can we get out of these cards? How objectively powerful is this card compared to another card in the game? Uh, but now we have we start having pieces, the masterpieces... The original masterpieces, I think, Battle for Zendikar, it was just 10 Shocklands, 10 Fetchlands. I want to say those were the original ones that came in Battle for Zendikar. Um, uh Something like that. There was 45 total, right? Wasn't it 20? I think it was 20 and, and 25. 25, 25 and both, yeah. yeah. Um, and the 25 were the non-fetch shocks? Yeah, kind of like random utility lands, right? Like Eye of Ugin was one of them. Ancient Tomb was one of them. Um, yeah. Right, yeah. but like, again, that that was their first real appeal to how much can we, can we kind of milk out of people to chase this thing that functionally operates the same, right? This... Right, Expedition Plude Delta, um, at the time I was say like two hundred dollars on release or something, it's a bit higher than that now. Right, but this card plays utility wise, it plays exactly the same as a cons Plude Delta that you can buy, you know, for twenty five dollars. I'm just making up a number, wherever it was at the time, probably even less. Um Right, but Balford Zendikar actually was one of their best selling fall sets up to that point. And that really spoke volumes to how much people were willing to chase this premium product, how much people were wanting to get these expeditions. And obviously that's something that they've gone down the line. We've kind of seen, you know, what were the following iterations. We had Kaladesh Inventions. After Kaladesh Inventions, we had Amonkhet. Um, invocations. Invocations. Um, thank you. And then after that, we started doing the Mythic Editions, and we started doing the Ultimate... Um, Masters box toppers, and now we started to see collector boosters that have these extended arts kind of incorporated into the product itself. And now we're looking at secret layers, right? Like, I think they're really looking to push the envelope. Um, and like seeing like how much are they really looking to, like, how much can they really get people to spend on some of these higher end products, right? Like, if we, um, double masters, right? That was the introduction of like the VIP, um, pack, the hundred dollar booster that, pack. The $100 booster pack, that's something that we haven't really seen them kind of touch on. Um, right, but for the people, like, the analog, if we look at sports, there are booster packs in sports that literally came out this year that are, like, $2,000 at retail. Um, <laughs> booster pack. A booster pack. It is a booster pack. It comes, it, it is literally the size of a, um, I'm trying to think of something that, like, is re reasonably close to it. Uh, it's, like, if you put, like, four fat packs together kind of like a large like box and it contains 10 like like maybe 10 cards but most of them are like one of fives one of ones one of tens right there's these various like patch cards all these things in them um but there are cards you can open up obviously inside this 2000 booster pack that are one of ones of a particular rookie that keep that year that we're probably talking like twenty thousand dollars like twenty thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars etc um and these are something. These are things that regularly sell. Most companies make one of these premium products a year, and they're always great sellers. I've, most people have realized that you're 
you know, this is a huge gamble, right? Like a lot of these $2,000 packs, you're opening up maybe $500 to $1,000 worth of cards, depending on what you open. But the appeal is there. Yeah. Um, whenever, I, whenever I watch those sports, the the YouTube sports channels, and they do the, the box breaks and stuff, I'm always struck by how Magic players complain when they bleed $40 in value off a draft booster box. And I'm, I'm like, you haven't opened premium sports product yet. <laughs> yeah. Much riskier again, like, overall. Yeah, absolutely. It's much riskier and like the ceiling's much higher. Um, right. But I think VIP is just like really kind of scratching the surface on that. Um, I kind of wonder like it, like it feels like VIP is kind of the next iteration of the original um, uh, masterpieces that came with Balfour Zendikar. Um, and I think like, you know, just kind of drawing from more experience from this past uh, Vegas event, um, it really feels like, a lot of these cards are becoming commonplace. And it's very clear to me that people are actually spending the amount of money that they would normally be spending on some of these premium products. Um, like it doesn't to me in my mind, and maybe I'm just kind of like projecting here, but a lot of people seem to be spending, if people are going to be spending, you know, a hundred ish dollars on a draft booster box, if they find a deal on a collector booster box, a lot of people seem to be shelling out for it. We bought no shortage of extended art cards um, from um, from these recent sets, especially Modern Horizons 2. Like, the amount of extended art um, cards from Modern Horizons 2 that we bought that clearly came from collector boosters is, like, absolutely mind-boggling. Um, right? And we have to remember that... Um, Modern Horizons 2 was kind of like a premium set, as it were. It's like a non-traditional set. A booster box was... I think like 180 to 200 or so and like the collector booster boxes are like a little bit more than that uh and like clearly that small upcharge is turning over is paying off massive for wizards because the fact that people are willing to spend x percent more to get the premium product is it like it like i think again that speaks kind of volumes to how successful the people how successful marketing can be if they can get people to spend a little bit more on a product that functionally operates the same this ties back to utility thing functionally operates the same it just has no black border instead of a black border right um and i think this is like it like in terms of long-term product uh projections for wizards like this is the kind of thing that in their mind they should be continuing to expand on because clearly there's people willing to shell money for this yeah it's it's basically suggest what's gone on with collector booster the the booster fund program and I guess, from as you said, from masterpieces forward, heavily underscores that they missed an opportunity probably for years. However, it may also be that their product has just gotten to the point now where their demographic has matured because the average age of a Magic player in 1995 was probably 18 to 24. The average age of a Magic player now, I suspect, is significantly higher. It could be high 20s, low 30s. And if you look at the demographic that spends the bulk of the money on the game, I'd be willing to argue that that's 34 to 55. Like, 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 like if somebody walks up to a booth and drops five grand at a GP, how old is that person? I would probably say like they're in their mid thirties. Yeah. Yep. They're right. Like that's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a person with a reasonably high gross income who may or may not be married, may or may not have a family, but is heavily invested in the game, maybe going through a nostalgia phase, maybe they've been with the game the whole time, but they're so deep into the game that throwing you know money into it 
equivalent to what they would spend on a new set of ski gear just isn't that big a deal to them. Well, this is kind of where the crypto park loops in is. I also wonder how successful all that would have been before that really took off. Um, you know, if they had launched the stuff in like 2012, 2013, would you have really had people willing to line up to spend that much money on it? The idea of spending that much money on collectibles at that time, I think was pretty, was still novel. You know, I'm not familiar with the sports card market, but you know, they, I know they had a bit of a crash, right? In Massive like the 90s crash. Or the Massive early crash. Yeah. So like there was probably real gun shy out of a lot of those markets, a lot of these collectible markets to do that type of thing. Um, and you didn't have that new money that had flooded in yet from crypto that not only did that allow, you know, that money flowing in from crypto in 2017. And so really set the stage for what they could get away with. Um, and not only did it give people money to make those purchases with, it also told everyone else that there is value in all of this and like, real value and like this stuff is investment grade and like you can spend $200 on a magic single magic card that looks cool because someone you know that down the road someone will buy it from you if you have to so it does it almost seems kind of like a I, I do wonder if it did wizards miss the boat in in terms of not doing it sooner or was the boat just not in the port before then I, I'm not sure I believe that crypto interplays with booster fund all that much um, because I think a lot of the crypto money flows into a different portion of the market, the very highest end, the power nine, et cetera, the, the super rare cards, um, that are, that don't necessarily circulate like Garfield's wedding invitation or whatever. But the, I certainly believe that the, that the market maturing to the point where they had more disposable income has a major, a lot to do with booster fund. Like they may not, they may not have believed in earlier demographics that 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 was a market they could tap because the money wasn't there. They, but I, I think if we, a lot of what I've said about Hasbro in this conversation insults them in the sense that it suggests they are followers rather than leaders. And I think if you believe in that perspective, then they all what we what they were really waiting for was somebody else to do to accomplish that outside of their sphere. And as Ed has you know detailed, the sports world. Sports card world also came around to that pretty late in the grand scheme of things. I mean, sports collectibles have had large ticket uh, price tags on them in the past, but a lot of it was gameplay material. You know, a jersey from a world championship winner, a bat, maybe a rookie, like a Honus Wagner rookie card. You're talking about going all the way back to like 1910s kind of thing. Um, But modern era cards were dead as a doornail. Like my bro- little brother just dropped off a bunch of my cards from my parents' house that they got rid of as they moved. And that stuff from like 1989 to 1993, 94, when I was in high school. And that stuff is trash. Absolutely useless. Now, if you get back a little further into like, say, Michael Jordan rookie and a Fleer card, now you're talking about a big money card. But when you get to that overproduced era, virtually nothing's worth money. And they had trouble with that for years and years where... Then one day, the you know, and I talked to, I worked with some of the upper deck guys on a completely different collectibles project that was related to rock memorabilia. And one of the major investors in that was a guy who had been at upper deck for years. And he just said, like, they didn't, they didn't think that was even like, they had no idea. They, they didn't think that it was a thing that they could move in, that they could start releasing ridiculously priced boxes of cards and people would buy them. Um, but that's the era we're in now. Right. And, but Ed, when you're when you're talking about like buying tons of booster fund cards at a GP, 
Is that to say that the vendor sentiment on that stuff, as long as the cards have strong play patterns, is relatively bullish? Yeah, I think I think that's like I think that's a that's a perfectly fair assessment to make. I think again because like utility is really the driving force of cards, right? Like we don't even like don't even think about it in terms of scarcity anymore because realistically, once we get kind of past like two thousand at this point, like there's no there's no cards that are scarce. Like, do we buy less? Was two thousand Meriden? Do we buy less Meriden era cards and modern era cards? Absolutely, but in terms of how many of these exist out there, right? It, it it's definitely like it's line day when compared to like when you start really getting back to the beginning of Magic when stuff was truly scarce, um, and I think like you know you know to really simply answer your question, um, you know buying these cards like vendors right like we'll always be buying them. There's always going to be people out there that are buying cards from the newest set, even things that you don't think will sell. Um, even just you know from Crimson Vow, just kind of the the way the market is headed, it looks to be a you know pretty underwhelming set. But that's not to say that you're not gonna be able to open up boxes um, as a as a game store and be able to excuse me be able to piece out all of it, even the bulkiest of bulk wares. Because you know on some level there's going to be people there's going to be people that they have a commander vampire deck that's vampire themed whatever. Excuse me, and they're going to just be buying those bulkish vampires, uh, or you know, there's. I think Wizards kind of is going more on the cool theme in terms of vampires, in terms of things that people can strongly associate with when they think of a more traditional vampire, and that's I think that's one thing that Wizards. I will give them credit for. I think they have been a bit more in touch with what players want, um, kind of over the past few years. Um, I don't know if that's kind of a uh, a paradigm shift in how they recruit for R&D for kind of their development. But it feels like even though you have more cards that are worth less, it doesn't mean they sell any less well. And kind of as a vendor at an event, uh, like realistically, you should be, you should be looking to buy any amount of things that will sell. And if you're doing it right, you can basically sell anything. Would you argue that modern and e- agree that modern and EDH are the two formats that are driving the most sales demand right now? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, EDH, I think, like far exceeds even modern. Modern is very popular, but I think modern kind of, kind of, you know, has a bit of friction that COVID has created with it, where you're looking to be competitive, like modern naturally competitive. You're um, you're wanting to kind of get people in a competitive space, into game stores, into these large events. Um, but you just naturally have this barrier of, well, you can't really have, you know, a bunch of people at a game store, or you're going to have people that are just not inclined to go to their game store to play modern, even if they are competitive modern players, kind of because of the nature of the pandemic right now. Whereas EDH, it's not unreasonable. I know I have I have customers. They play EDH every week with their friends. That's literally their Friday night. It's literally Friday night commander for them. Um, I have this like one group. There's four of them. There's four, about four to six of them, and they basically just rotate like uh, between four people's houses. Two of them, I guess, like live in smaller apartments or something. They can't really host it. But basically, if you look at it, it's basically they just go through one month cycle where they just go to a different person's house. That person hosts. 
Um, they whoever's hosting is responsible for food, and then Friday they just get together and play EH. Um, and that's really something that's survived kind of the pandemic. It hasn't really affected these players. I imagine this was something they were doing before the pandemic, and this is something that they'll probably continue to do after the pandemic ends. Um, we've seen like webcam magic, right? You can't have a webcam modern tournament of 600 players, but there's no shortage of people who have bought webcams to play to play commander with people around the world that they may not be able to interact with, um, you know, up close and personal the way a modern event would require. You probably can't run a webcam modern tournament, <laughs> right? Like, somebody might try. Somebody might try. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. those are so like the, arena. Th- those are really good points because the there's a huge feature set difference between these two formats, especially in the context of COVID, but even from a like a 50,000 foot view down perspective, even when we're, once we're past COVID, one of the things that drives EDH forward beyond modern is the ability to inject your personality into the format. There's so many different things you can do. You don't have to play one of the, the top five most powerful commanders to have fun on a Friday night with three other friends. You can bring almost any deck to the table and have about an equivalent time. And as opposed to if there's a lot of people that have trouble going to, you know, a modern F&M, bringing their pet deck and getting spanked. It's like the feel bads are prevalent. Whereas I, I walk into an EDH game just assuming I'm going to lose. Like I, I, it, the, and the better the deck I bring, the more likely I think it is that I'll, I'll be the one that gets targeted early. So, you know, you, you're making, you're operating on a completely different spectrum. And I made this comment on Twitter earlier this week about how EDH is just a better hobby. It's a better version of the hobby than the competitive formats like Standard and, and Commander because you spend more time engaged in the hobby. There's the process of hunting down and collecting cards for your EDH collection, and you can feel better about doing that because so much, a much broader swath of them will continue to be relevant, especially compared to something like a standard where the cards rotate out every two years, um, or even less if it's a summer set at the end of the cycle. Um, and then there's the uh, the personal touch of building the deck your way. You know, you don't want to build a tracks of Planeswalkers. You're going to build a tracks of some other way with a bunch of quirky cards that you're that you happen to like and so you get to put your stamp on the game to a much greater degree than if you're going to if you're trying to be competitive as a modern player you basically have to be up to speed on you know at present 10 to 15 decks but a lot of the part of the past three or four decks or you have virtually no chance of top baiting and then that social dynamic aspect that you referred to where people can play edh on webcam during covid they can play with smaller or larger groups. They can do it at a GP, but they can also do it with their partner. They can play head-to-head EDH if they want to. Um, you know, these are these are big deals, and 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 they drive the brand in a way that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I think you absolutely hit that on the head, right? And I can need to expand on that a little bit more. I think EDH really captures, like, by making edh more mainstream wizards is able to capture an element that they haven't been able to capture before and that's the same element as the same mystique that exists in pokemon that exists in sports cards uh whenever you're buying a card for an edh deck and i see this so often with people who are buying cards that i very much know they're buying cards for an edh deck there is really a sense of permanence that exists when they're building their edh deck, especially that foil 
um, it really like it really zeroes in on making your EDH deck about you, um, right? And I think that's like part of the beauty of it. Um, a lot of people, especially myself, in the past, having been a competitive Magic player um, for the longest time, I kind of like scoffed at EDH. It was one of those things where it just you know it even to this day doesn't completely make sense to me, but I can respect the fact that. Anyone who really puts in a lot of time into EDH understands why there's so much appeal, why, you know, we look at some of these old border foils, we think about, like, this, you know, some crappy common or uncommon from Kamigawa, you know, like, non-foil, it's maybe, like, 50 cents a dollar, kind of your common, you know, what you expect for a common, but you think, you look at the foil, and also this foil's $15. And part of that, right, is, is kind of that the same the same reason why people chase you know a set a, a particular pokemon why they want it in good condition why grading cards is so prevalent in pokemon why grading cards is so prevalent in sports cards is in EDH right like being able to play and being able to share with other players look at my cool deck look at this new foil i got that's something that is a legitimately positive experience for magic players that i don't think you really see in a modern tournament one because you're there to win um, right, but like you know, most modern players, right? If you look at kind of your elemental, your elementals deck in modern, most people are probably running close to the same list, and your honestly, your elementals deck is gonna look like your opponent's elementals deck. Whereas the likelihood that someone will be playing the same EDH deck as you is, is virtually zero. They yeah, they can play it's... the same commander. You might have a lot of the same overlapping cards, right? Atraxa, you're probably gonna have some on planeswalkers, right? But the fact that they have the same foil planeswalkers as you. The fact that they chose the same set of Planeswalkers, right? Like, when you think that you have, like, Mythic Edition Planeswalkers, you have OG Packfoil, all these different things, right? It is really what has made EDH so successful. Um, and, and I think another I think, a, another big factor, no clock. Like, at a modern tournament, you often, like, if you're playing a control deck, you don't have time to banter. Because you're, you're, run, you're frequently running up against the clock. And, well, spending a lot of time complimenting your, and discussing your friend's you know, artistic choices and deck construction does, doesn't happen all that often. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's fun and social, which is just essentially two elements that are lacking from the competitive formats. And, you know, you made the comment and I, I had the same thought, but you guys both talk quickly uh, that, the you know, the prevalence of EDH and the growth of that as a format feels like it's the closest wizards has come to capturing that appeal of, uh, magic or i'm sorry of pokemon in that it allows you to be more personality um, and more individuality that does hasn't existed in the game really so because there's always been collectors there's always been completionists there's always been people that put together sets that and back when before booster fund if you go back 15 years it was actually a lot easier to collect magic because there was so much less to track you know my dad my dad used to just play on magic online then he would redeem sets He'd get the set in the mail, he'd slide it into a binder, done good, move on to the next one. These days, he's way behind, right? Like, he's just lost track of all the different stuff between secret layers and booster fun and whatever else. Um, Japanese alt arts and, and what have you. But there's, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, the the advent of EDH, which in many ways is a, is a happenstance, right? Not a conscious decision. Like, ED, like by 2011... They come around and realize that this is a trend line they're supposed to be jumping into. But before that, this was a grassroots-driven format. And they've just kind of lucked into owning it and being able to profit off of it. 
Um, and I very much doubt that that the brand would have done nearly as well during COVID if Commander wasn't a thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree, right? I think, like, <clears throat> I, th- I think, you know, kind of the initial response is that, well, c- like, collectibles are going to, like, see a massive dip during COVID was, again, we kind of think about, well, if game stores can't be open and people can't be out there playing with you, playing magic with one another, right? Like, what incentive is there to keep to keep going, right? But clearly, like, you know, webcam EDH or just very small scale, you know, Friday night come over and play EDH anyways, um, that's really what kept it going. And we kind of look at the other collectibles, right? The fact that the that these collectibles aren't tied to utility is really, like, what's, like, made, like, you know, the prices on a lot of these things skyrocketed. I think the sports card market, I think they reported that in the past year since kind of since COVID started, as it were, I think of like the 25 highest sports cards auctions of all time. I want to say like 20 of them have happened in the past year. Right. Um, and that just really goes to show like how many people are moving into that space. So, so I, hold on. I want to catch on this. You're, you're, t- th- this kind of captures part of something here is how much of that has changed in sports cards in the last couple of years. And, We've seen this major change in magic in the last several years. You know, we're talking about 2015, 2016 as being sort of the development of all of this. Crypto is right around that time period. Like a lot of this stuff has changed, has really changed in the last five or six years. Do you think that's sustainable? Um, that's actually, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I kind of mentioned earlier, I do have faith in crypto. I think crypto is going to be something that will continue to exist. And I think as long as crypto exists, as long as crypto is a way to kind of facilitate these high-end transactions, right? Like it's a lot safer, again, a lot safer to carry around a wallet or your phone that, that you keep crypto on than it is to carry around $20,000, $50,000 in cash. Um, is it sustainable? I'm inclined to say it is. I think we are kind of in a... A slightly precarious area. I th- era. I think we are. I think people have started to v- realize that there's value in absolutely anything that is collectible. Right. We're not just talking about sports cards. Right. Like we think, or not not sports cards necessarily, but cards in general. We think of them as kind of the uh, we. They're what we think as collectible. Right. But like, what does collectible mean now? Xbox. They released. They recently released the Halo Infinite Limited Edition. Right. Everything is now limited. Right. There's um. Right, people are selling Pokemon Oreos, right? Like that was one of the things that they came out a little while ago, right? Like anything can be collectible now, and I think I a could lot go for of some Oreos right now. What's that? I could go for some Oreos right now. <laughs> um, I mean, some of these Oreos, I don't know if you've looked, like it looks like it's a meme, but like people actually legitimately sell these Oreos. Um, and oh, yeah. there's there's some some Oreos that are more rare, that are more expensive. People are apparently spending dollars on them uh is it sustainable i think the fact that everything has become collectible may kind of make nothing collectible as it were right i think if we kind of narrow this down to specifically magic um right like if you look at an ultimate masters box topper right you think you look at like um what's an example of one eternal witness right like awesome commander card if if you saw an ult- if you showed this to someone who had recently started Magic, they would think that your Ultimate Masters box topper came out of a collector booster pack, right? There's nothing necessarily unique about it. Uh, you would specifically have to know that this was a box topper that you could only get at the time, and it was relatively rare at the time, right? This wasn't something that 
was too common, especially because there there was kind of a hiatus from when they did Amaket Invocations until these box topper things came out, um, right? Like if we, like if we make these things too common, right? Like what is really collectible anymore? What is truly collectible in the Marn like in the sets nowadays, right? Crimson Vow, right? There's some talk, there's some speculation that the uh, the Soren, the alternate art Soren, uh, may be more rare. We don't actually know if that's true, right? But like that's kind of the only thing that I would think would be collectible nowadays. So, like, it's becoming hard and harder to make this something that is sustainable. Again, because it feels like they're going to slowly start running out of ideas. And I think that's really well, okay. on them to kind of keep it fresh. So, let, let, let me let me grab onto this then. Is you, you specifically cited how, you're, you know, talking about, like, how if, there, if everything is collectible and unique and special, then nothing is. Which I feel like was probably an issue back in, like, wasn't that in like the 80s and the 90s and they hit comic books i think right is they tried to make everything limited edition and special editions and it kind of came back to bite them in the ass and i don't have the details so i don't know if it played out quite the same way like i don't know if they're doing limited runs the way they do now um so i i kind of wonder if this if this has crept up the the problem the problem with with comics and sports cards in the early 90s was they were just mass overproduced like you could there there was boxes and boxes them at your corner store at your Walmart, at your Target, everywhere. And they just, they pumped tons and tons of it into the distribution pipeline. And nobody could keep up with with collecting all the sets. And they were all relatively low-grade product with very little differentiation. And on the comic side, it was like infinite covers. Um, that yeah, th- yeah. Th- they, or like of. the death of Superman in the black bag. They would like pitch that as being like ultra-limited. But in fact, they printed like a million of them or whatever. So like... To me, when you talk about sustainability, and there's a couple of points buried in in Ed's uh, comments that I want to double back to, but just on your question about like how sustainable is the collectibles boom, Travis? I think at the very high end of the market, crypto does have an outsized impact on that because I think I do believe there's a lot of money flowing from crypto into collectibles as a safe haven. Um, But I also see it as a function of late stage capitalism. In, that, in, that's exactly where I was going to In go a scenario this. where economic disparity widens and the yeah. and you have a large amount of inflation that drives the value of cash dollars down, collectibles will naturally increase in price because they, they cost more dollars for the same thing, even if nothing else changes. Now, if you have the, desi- the demand or utility for that product also on an upward swing at the same time that you're encountering general consumer inflation, then you're going to end up in a situation where collectibles are a pretty good bet in the same way that real estate will be a pretty good bet in the same way um, that anything is that is that, that crypto that acts independently of the market may be a pretty safe bet um, if it's if it's not just destroyed by by legal issues. Um, and I think that, so a large part of whether the collectibles boom is sustainable has a lot to do with the, the general market trends. Like if we we're kind of due, we're in a very frothy stock market right now. And we're kind of, there's a lot of discussion about a major collapse forthcoming. And in a major collapse, um, you would normally think that a lot of retail businesses would be in trouble. And I would imagine that the highest end of collectibles, if there was a crypto crash at the same time as a market crash, then you could have collectibles uh, be in serious trouble. If you had a market crash, but a crypto boom as a result, like if, if the market crashed, 30 percent but bitcoin went up 30 percent then high-end collectibles might be a booming business we've also seen that in the last major recession um in the housing crisis magic did pretty well 
And one of the reasons it did pretty well is because the average price point of a booster pack was in that hamburger or pack of cigarettes or a drink at the bar on the way home uh, impulse purchase area. Like if you have $5 to $20 things that make you feel better, give you a little like a little boost, little a little joy boost, endorphin, a little, endorphin, little endorphin boost, boost yeah. then a lot of those things tend to do good in recessions. One of the reasons that collectibles did so well during COVID, you know, Edward got close to this point earlier, was that it wasn't that, yes, the LGSs were shut down. And yes, people couldn't go play. And you and I up front, like many other people, were talking about how that was likely to pull card prices down. And in fact, for standard and modern cards, it certainly did. There was very little action on that stuff in 2020 compared to 2021. When things started to come back, you know, modern cards started to show light, signs of life. But what we missed is that if, you know, mid to high disposable income households can't go on vacation, they have no reason to buy new cars, they're not wearing through their tires as quick, they don't need to buy as much fashion because they don't have as many places to go, they're going to end up with a bunch of built up demand for both entertainment and spare cash. And that's going to get redirected to hobbies. And the hobbies that are going to benefit the most are the ones that you can execute in your home. And lo and behold, we've just spent 20 minutes talking about EDH and how it's a pretty great multi-stage hobby to execute on your own in your living room. You, your, your, your thought there about you know the late-stage capitalism is what I was driving to was it, the sustainability being linked to kind of a two-pronged concept is one, this this drive towards ultra-collectability and increasing the rarity of everything, not just in magic, but in across the larger space in general. But adding to that, that it seems like it is tied to income disparity. Yeah. And, you know, as those wages and, and the, the, the wealth at the top grows, you know, it's easier and easier to spend ludicrous amounts of money on all these crazy looking cards while the people who are working DoorDash and Uber um, are are being it's getting harder and harder for them to do anything to play at all. Um, and obviously this problem exists outside of magic. This is a societal issue and will have impact across all of collectibles. And, I, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I there's probably an economics PhD paper in here about how all of this intersects. Ed made another point earlier about how he didn't have like huge hopes for magic in the very long term. And one of the things that worries me about magic on say a 15 or 20 year plus horizon, not only are they way, way, way behind on digital and they're going to be, you know, when we get to holographic based gaming, they're going to be 10, five, 10 years behind everybody else, et cetera. But I also think about it in terms of, yeah, they made, they had record revenue and profit on the brand during COVID. A lot of that probably came from the highest end of their market being willing to double down on the brand and spend double or triple what they norm they used to. People used to spend a couple thousand on a magic. You know, we know from the pro trader community that whales were spending five, six, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year on magic. And is that sustainable long term? I think you need fresh blood because those people are it's those people are going to be very good for your brand all the way through their peak earning years. But when they start to retire and or die. When their friend networks that they used to play cards with start to fade out, you really need a fresh pool of nostalgic feeling 30-somethings and 40-somethings to reinvigorate the brand. And if it's true that during COVID they didn't grow the base, they just pumped up the ARPU, the average revenue per user, then 
I'd really be concerned that there isn't a fresh group of 14 to 24 year olds that are going to get nostalgic about the brand in 15 years and be looking to spend money on it. I, th- I think that's kind of an interesting point, right? I think when we kind of, we, a lot of the, a lot of these things haven't existed over the full course of our lifetime yet. Right. Like, um, right. Like I started playing magic in 1996. I was seven years old at the time. Uh, so like the, what that's, uh, 1996, five, 25 years for me at this point. Um, right. Like that's still a relatively small amount of time when you kind of compare it to things like we can compare to things that have lasted longer, right? Comic books. They've been around since like the 1920s, 1930s or something. Yeah, I saw, I saw uh, sports years. cards. Yeah, solid 100 years. Uh, sports cards kind of been in that same boat. Um, one of the things that I haven't really touched on but I've dipped into is numismatics, right? The study and uh, transacting of coins, collectible coins. That's a hobby that's been around for hundreds of years. Um, and all these things, uh, I think part of the way that magic is going to survive, and right, one of the things you touched on is obviously new blood, Um but they have to find a way to make it eternal, as it were. Got- and I don't mean eternal in the sense of, like, vintage. I mean eternal in the sense of something that you can relate to, but you'll be able to help your son or daughter relate to down the line, right? That's one of the things that Pokemon does beautifully, right? Because you have people... Pokemon came to the U.S. in 1999. If you were my age, right, in 1999, I would be 10, um... I imagine most people my age who are now, what, I'm 32, uh, most people are probably, like, at their stage in their life where they're getting houses, they're married, they're probably having kids, or their kids may be starting to get a little bit older. Um, I have customers that buy and sell Pokemon cards and deal with me because they want a hobby that they can share with their child. Um, right? These are people that are still... That that still have the same love for Pokemon that they did in 1999. Obviously, it's kind of like wax and waned over the years, right? But this is one of those things. Are they necessarily watching the cartoon still? No. But these are the type of people that may be going to a gas station, may be going to Target, seeing some cards on the shelf, picking them up, taking them home, and enjoy opening packs and looking at the art and looking at the different types of Pokemon with their kids. They're, they're... And I think that is really going to be one of the things that makes, like, if Magic has a shot about being being something that's going to last 15, 20 years, that's something that they need to start thinking about. There's no greater scam to run on a dad at retail than to trick him into buying a bunch of expensive shit for his kid that he's actually buying for himself. <laughs> I have a whole chest of G.I. Joes back at my house that are at a, at a station to exactly that. Because my dad would go and be like, this is a cool G.I. Joe, and then buy it because he wanted it. And, and he can and, pass it off you know, to a significant other box. and family <laughs> like he's buying it for you. He can... And when he interacts with it with you, he's spending time with you. Like we have right. one of my, yeah. my wife's best friends, uh, the dad in that household was obviously a huge Pokemon freak when he was younger. Uh, and his kid is like nine and the kid's playing Pokemon online. And every time I'm over there, they're on the iPad together doing it. And he's always talking about how like he's just there to help him, like make sure he makes the right decisions. And I'm like, come the hell. Like, come on, man. You're like, you you're, you know the meta better than he does. Like, don't give me that bullshit. Yeah. Like, you know who you're talking to, right? Like, you might yeah, be able that's, to pull that's that not off. That's not going to work on me. There, <laughs> the, uh, so, yeah. I mean, I think Ed's point is, is excellent, is an excellent one, which is that multi-generational brands is where it's at. 
if you if you're not if you haven't slid your brand into the zeitgeist if you haven't jumped the shark at some point if you can't make a movie or uh, a video game from your brand and reliably have it adopted by the mainstream not just your core audience then you are limited in how big you can get and magic has done extremely well at tier two but they have never crossed into tier one and they really need a they need they need a lot of things to come together over the course of a five or 10 year period to hop, skip and a jump to that next level. And I think that there's a pretty good argument to suggest that they never will um, because the game is sufficiently complex and they're making it more complex to parse all the time with additional formats um, that it's just never going to be a mainstream thing. Thing is, that would be fine. Like, you can be a really excellent tier two thing, making tons of money. I mean, their other brand at Watsi, D&D, is in a very similar boat. D&D is not a mainstream thing. But it's the concept of D&D, like, that people play a thing called D&D, is in the zeitgeist. That has jumped over into the mainstream. You ask somebody what D&D is on the street, they know what it is. You ask somebody what Magic the Gathering is, they may have heard of it, but they probably don't know anything beyond that if they don't actually play it. Where, yeah. Whereas D&D is now like celebrities on Twitch doing streams. You got $20 million Kickstarters backing cartoons. You know, it's a ma- major, major win that is just a notch ahead of Magic in, its, in terms of its marketability. And that was the nerdiest thing in the universe. Like Ed talked about like being made fun of for playing Pokemon cards at, at, at a lunchroom table. Boy, the, those kids were beating up the D&D kids. So yeah. the, the, you know, the fact that they've be able to be able to, been able to turn the corner on D&D and like triple the revenues in the last few years is pretty amazing stuff. D and D almost seems better positioned on a longer time frame than magic. Oh, is. I think so. Because D and D is it, D&D is the type of thing that you can take your seven-year-old and your six-year-old and your kids and, like, you can play with your family, right? And get the, in the neighborhood kid come over and you can have a game. And, like, that's really easy and it, sc- it scales extremely well um, and can be adapted to, you know, different play groups and, and all that type of thing. Whereas Magic is like, ah, uh, there is an extremely high floor for being able to access this game both um conceptually and monetarily honestly it's also D is also, also lends itself ex- incredibly well to the era of video games that's going to emerge as quantum computers take hold and we finally get holographic fully responsive and adaptive uh ai driven gaming experiences magic pro- has some room to maneuver in there too but it's not as narrative driven as of an experience. So I suspect that the version of magic that would emerge in that era would just would kind of like merge with D and D because they end up kind of being the same version of that property. Like somebody wants to do a noir version. Somebody wants to do a sports version in the hollow deck. Somebody wants to do a fantasy version, the fantasy version, whether your flate, your the texture and flavor of that is magic. The gathering versus D and D is cutting things fairly fine. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things like really emphasize like in the case of D and D here is that it's it's timeless, right? It's it's almost timeless in the way that you know comics are timeless. It's t- it's timeless in the way that you know sports cards like Pokemon is looking. There, these things are all timeless because people realistically, no matter what age, 
can relate to these in some capacity, right? Like D and D came out in, like I want to say the mid '80s, like probably before I was born, even. Um, right, like most people can relate to that, even if you've never played D and D, even if you're, you know, if you're like 20 years old or like a teenager now, you probably have a concept of what D and D is, right? Same with like comic books. Why do you like? Why is grading comics so prevalent? Because it's one of those things that people grade comics, right? You're completely destroying any utility of a comic by grading it, right? Because you obviously can't open it and actually, like, read anymore. You're looking at the front side and the back side of a graded comic, that's it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Right? Same with, like, a sports card, right? Like, it, there's, the there's no utility in it. It's <laughs> it's simply eye appeal, right? This is one of the things that, like, a lot of... If you look, if you go to auction houses and you look at, like, PWCC or, like, Heritage, Golden, uh, when they talk about some of these investment pieces, they talk about the eye appeal of 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 it and it's again because it's so timeless that people can look at it like most of us you know we weren't you know we obviously were very young when like michael jordan was playing for example but we can still relate to michael jordan and the basketball experience even if we're not basketball fans ourselves even if we don't necessarily know you know much about like who he's playing against like when he was playing that type of thing um and again, magic hasn't really broken into the like what makes it timeless. Like, what does it mean to like grade a magic card? Like, I can't necessarily relate, but I don't know of many people who are like grading magic cards and like propping them up on their desk or something. But you hear about this all the time with comics, right? People frame comics and literally put them on their wall as the same way you would put a painting on the wall. People buy sports cards, grade <clears throat> sports cards, and put them on their desks as you know, kind of a desk ornament. Uh, because it has good eye appeal. Same with Pokemon. If you're in any of the Pokemon Facebook groups, some people have really, really elaborate setups of like glass cases and ways to display their Pokemon cards because they have eye appeal. And part of that is because they're all mm. timeless, right? Because everyone can relate to them. Everyone can look at them and appreciate them. I just don't see Magic kind of having that same well, eye appeal well, as it were. And again, it's because if you put a baseball... Or a Pikachu, like a first edition Charizard, as of like just the last few years, this would have moved into this space. Um, or, you know, a rock album that's signed by the band or whatever. People are, or you have a Hulk comic, like first appearance of Hulk on the wall. People will walk into your office. They may think that's pretty nerdy. They may not be super into it, but they will still recognize sports fan. Oh, you like Avengers? I just watched that last week. Whereas with, again, Magic does not have those touchstones in the zeitgeist. We don't have the cultural, the shared culture outside of our own hobby. That That's what they're missing. They they have to achieve that or they're never going to cross from tier two to tier one. Absolutely. And I think that's like, you know, kind of having worked boost for a long time. I think like part of, you know, doing sales, kind of interacting with customers is you start to kind of pick up on these things. Like you mentioned, right? Somebody walks in your office and they see you know, a copy of, like, uh, the first appearance of the Hulk comic on the wall, for example, they might realize that, you know, you're a comic book fan. They see sports cards, like, a, a sports card framed on your desk, or, like, a, uh, you know, memorabilia goes really deep with this. People frame uh, spo- uh, sports tickets, right? All these things, um, they might be able to relate. And it really kind of creates this... The wider something is, the more likely you are to be able to kind of develop that immediate connection with a customer, um, and this is one of the things that when it kind of comes down to, um, to doing sales, kind of interacting with people, right? Like, like when the way you dress, the kind of these little clues about yourself really allows you to size someone up, right? And then it goes down, it goes all the way. Like, like who, like what am I looking for when I see a person coming up, um, 
asking if we accept crypto, right? Like you can kind of kind of gauge like by their age, right? Like what type of backpack are they wearing? Are they wearing like an expensive watch? Like what uh, brand of apparel? Like all these things, you have ways of sizing them up, and just kind of having, um, right? Like in the case of like sports cards or a comic or something, it just it's just a different way to size someone up because you know you have people because it's like things are starting to like become cross brand people are wanting to trade comics for sports cards sports cards for pokemon pokemon for magic like all these things are starting to really like come together and i think it's part of that is just the collectible world has just become especially with like these like collabs and cross branding now um it's really starting to become like interwoven with each other all right, so this guy's got on a Movado and Gucci slides. I bet he's going to be yeah. in crypto. All right, so let me – we did a pretty good job of covering that that section. I just want to double back to something that I was asking you about earlier, Ed. Can we agree that the EDH traffic at a, your average GP booth is way up from five, ten years ago? Yeah, I think, like, it, like that's, that's no doubt, right? Like, there's just so much more uh, – there's just so many more eyes on it just kind of from the – development all the way down to like the consumer and everything in between mm-hmm. right edh is just like completely exploded on every level right so and so buying cards you guys are much more willing to pay a higher amount and buy more uh more copies of prevalent edh staples than you were 10 years ago yeah absolutely okay so let's sidestep to something else i know you've been involved in um and you and i have actually had transactions on this side of things um you've done a lot of travel to asia for magic related business right Right. And how does how has that changed over the years in terms of the amount of arbitrage going on between, say, Japan and North America and both at the vendor level and your perception of, uh, you know, the armchair speculator getting involved? Yeah, I, I think arbitrage has become a little bit tougher during the pandemic. I know that, like, you know, in the case of Asia, specifically Japan, right, I used to go to Japan a lot. Um Right, like in the current state of things, Japan actually has is like its borders are shut. They actually don't allow anyone to the country except unless you are a Japanese citizen, uh, the spouse of a Japanese citizen, or like a diplomat, like some sort of like government official or something. Um, so, like a lot of that has made it harder. Uh, I know that uh, EMS, the uh, the USPS of Japan, as it were. Is shut down. I know for a while they weren't shipping anything to the U.S., so Haruhi actually had like a banner on its page where it's saying like, "These are a list of countries that we can't ship to." The U.S. was one of them, uh, so that definitely has made the arbitrage a little bit harder. Um, but like, it's still possible to see where there's kind of these like large discrepancies um, that that do exist still uh, exist for Magic, exist for basically any form of retail. Um, I know that. You know, for people that do do it, um, consoles, video game consoles, like Xbox, X, Xboxes, and um, PS5s, there's a huge markup in Asia for them. Um, so I know that, I know they're definitely flippers, uh, which is an entirely different problem itself. I'm not really looking to get into that, but a lot of people are sending these things. They're not even trying to buy them from Walmart and sell them to your local, to your local gamer who needs it for a Christmas present or something for like, you know, $300 more than what they paid. They're actually just shipping them overseas now. Um, and this is something that's always going to exist from just small things like trading cards all the way up to people that buy, you know, people come to, you know, it used to be one things where people would come back and they just buy like iPhones and take them back. People bring luxury goods. People bring Rolexes, uh, Louis Vuitton 
right? All these things, like the arbitrage always exists because there's always a market for these things simply because people just don't have access to them and it's not really any different for for magic. Definitely paid for a trip to Barbados once, once by bringing down some iPods because those smaller islands in the Caribbean technology stuff is super hard to come by and always like at a, at a significant price premium. So I, I can understand what you're talking about there. When we talk about the flow of cards to Japan from North America, is it safe to say that a lot of, you know, dual lands, legacy, power nine, um, and modern and legacy staples have made their way in that direction? Uh, it definitely has, uh, especially when it comes to kind of the older stuff. The older stuff you usually see kind of largest premium. Dual lands is kind of the most notable one. Uh, excuse me, same with power. Because um, you have to think about it in kind of a very simplistic sense. Um, Japan, uh, Japanese cards, the first printing of them was in 4th edition, which would be 1990, late 94, early 95, I believe. Um, so basically every single dual land that exists in Japan, every single piece of power that exists in Japan, at some point someone had to either fly it there themselves or it had to be shipped there in some capacity, which I guess still hmm. entails the, it flying there. Um and I think that's like a kind of a big part of it, right? Like magic literally did not exist in Japan prior to 1994. And, that, and that's um, similar to how Pokemon started in Japan and the reverse is true in that case. Because it was po- right, pocket right. It monsters there first. Yep, and did exist for, I, it came out in Japan in 96. So it was like, uh, be like three years before it came to the US right. in 1999. Right, right, right. So then when you're, say you're, it's four years ago or whatever, and you're moving a bunch of dual lands over to Japan... Are you bringing EDH cards back? What are you bringing back? Uh, it really varies. It's really like, like are you just bringing cash? Like are you just bringing still... cash back and buying again, or do you are, were you buying was buying EDH staples there a thing? Uh, yeah, like I mean, it, it's one of those things. Like bringing cash back is like the least profitable thing you can do, right? You want to be making money on both sides of the transaction, sure. right? You want to be making money going there and then making money coming back. Um, so like buying cards is like the probably the most profitable things you could do. Um was like obviously EDH and to my understanding from what I've been told by other people who did this longer than I have is even like when I, my first trip to Japan was November 2016 around Thanksgiving and that was like even at that point that was kind of at the tail end of when EDH was still good and I think that was when they were starting to understand that EDH was a thing and most of the vendors were already start kind of like catching on to you know hey this is an EDH card let's not put it in the bulk pile that was you know years before um, because like before that, I heard of stories of people putting like, like there were literally, there were literally vendors, uh, or people in Japan, backpack grinders that could go to stores. They could buy up things that were, um, like well below SCG buy list or card kingdom buy list. And then they would send them, you know, these cards, they would send like stacks of cabal coffers and Vorn clicks and all these EDH cards at the time. They would just send them to these buy lists because they could get them for literally nothing in Japan at the time. Send them here, send them to these buy lists, take the credit bump, buy dual lands, mm. and then take those dual lands to those same stores. So tasty. To sell them <laughs> so tasty. for credit in order to be able to buy these cards again. Now um, you're speaking my language. There I, there had to be, like, that That was a reasonably small window, though, right? Like, a two or three years? Because that there wasn't that window where EDH was that popular, but before... Not, not... The Japanese market had I mean, I, I look at it as a slowly closing door. Okay, definitely longer than two or three years, because I did some of that all the way back in 2011. And this week I bought wedding rings uh, in in Tokyo for 78 cents a piece when they were $20 on TCG. 
Now, Harry Yuya had them at nine or whatever, and they were sold out. And I have noticed that in the last couple of years, Harry Yuya has started to, if there's a card that is popular in EDH, the Japanese copy will be cheaper than the English copy on Harry Yuya because they're, they're wise to the situation. Um, but yeah, slowly closing door. Does that sound about right, Ed? Yeah, it's one of those things, like, like now it's, like, no secret that, like, like, Vampire Tutor is, like, kind of, like, the quintessential, like, black EDH card, right? It's cheap, it's a tutor, it kind of does everything you want. Um, I mean, there were points when, you know, like, I was getting them, like, when they were, like, kind of in the $40 range, and that's kind of where it hovered for the longest time. Um, I was getting them for, like, $10. Um, right. <laughs> Right, and this like you know, obviously that's kind of close, right? Like EDH has just become so mainstream now that you'd be foolish not to put like Vampire Tutor and EDH like together, right? Kind of, um, right? But you still see these gaps, right? Wedding Ring was an example, um, Smothering Tithe, like literally the most expensive card in Ravnica Legions, uh, right now, more expensive than Shocklands, more expensive than most of like the competitive rares and mythics at the point, um, was literally bulk rare in Japan for quite some time because people just simply didn't catch on that this was actually like a ridiculous edh card sure i mean smothering ties were super cheap there Rhystic study was super cheap there the um uh so let's say you could teleport there today no problems you're you're you have a covid force field around you and you're you're disguised as a japanese citizen um you can go anywhere get anything you're taking over the usual stuff what are you bringing back are you bringing back edh stuff are you bringing back pokemon you bringing back a little of everything uh, so, oddly enough, um, this kind of goes back to sports, but um, Shohei Otani, he plays for uh, the Angels. Uh, he was recently he recently got, like, the MVP for um, for the MLB this past year. Uh, he's apparently, from what I've been told, uh, he is incredibly popular in Japan. He is just, like, because he played baseball in Japan for a long time. Uh, I follow baseball. Baseball is just kind of my sports of choice. Um like he's very kind of very, very popular in champ. Uh, like apparently bringing like rookie cards over, like high end like serial number cards that are graded, uh, they're graded like tens or nines or whatever. Apparently are could be very profitable because nice. I don't think that market exists in Japan yet. Because um, a lot of the premium right. the premium sports releases that are focused on U.S. based sports, they're produced mm-hmm. and distributed primarily in the U.S. Right. Yes. Right. Correct. Um. Like, does, does, so like, like I, if there's like a six thousand dollar box of whatever NBA cards, does distribution in Japan get access to any of that, or do they have to buy in the secondary market? I believe it would be all secondary market. I don't gotcha. know if U.S. companies that that send like these things uh, overseas because I know like in the case of like soccer, for example, uh, soccer obviously like more of like a European sport, uh, you know, Asian sport, uh, South American sport. Uh, each of those continents, they actually have companies that produce uh, the sport separately. So like. In the U.S., uh, I believe Tops is one of the big companies that produces them. They actually have to buy the licensing to use like the team logos, like the um, like the um, the various companies or whatever. They actually have to buy the licensing or produce sports cards. And to my understanding, the sports cards that are produced by Tops is completely different than the European company that produces those same uh, soccer cards. Gotcha. So that's what you're taking over there. What are you bringing back? Uh, I think it's, like, going wide. Like, honestly, like, Magic is one of the things that, like I mentioned, I've, like, slowly started to kind of, uh, like, transition out of Magic. Um, again, I just don't have the same faith in it that I did a few years ago. Uh, I, I can recognize that there's still rooms, there's still spots to make money, and I think that there are things that Magic definitely does well. But in terms of what I'm taking back, like, 
sure I'm spending some amount of money on magic to bring back that has, you know, like the EDH stuff, the stuff that will always be underpriced. Um, right? Like, there's always gonna be, like, the Cabal Coffers, the Palancrons, the Cami Rectors, right? These, these things will, like, always exist in Japan in large quantity at a lower price. Uh, but I'm, like, I've definitely looked at other things now. I've, like, Pokemon, just the fact that it just does so well um, is, like, one of the things I'd be looking to uh, bring back in quantity. Uh, there are other sports games, too. Um, mainly just because I've started to go wide. Like, I've started to look at Weiss more and more. Uh, that's one of the things that just again anime really has kind of a just a much wider audience um than kind of what magic does um one things i've started to do kind of on the side by myself is i haven't actually started to vent anime cons just some local ones here in portland i actually haven't traveled extensively for them but it's one of those things where you kind of really open up your eyes to how some of these things like what some of these productions like anime for example or pokemon what have you they just do things very well that magic doesn't and part of that again is just really capturing just a much larger uh a much larger audience um so like weiss is one of the things it's like uh, for people that don't know it's i believe it's produced in like japan or singapore it's it's just it's just a card game that's based off anime um and that's one of the things that does very well they um They've, reached, they've also had a recent set that has serial number cards that was pretty well received. Uh, they have just very high rarity cards that actually have a stamp of the voice actor or actress's signature on some of their cards. Those are the, they, those would be the equivalent of like masterpieces or box toppers, what have you. Uh, because you can get obviously the non-stamped version for a fraction of what the 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 signed version costs. But you're, you're um, giving me homework here. What's the? How do we spell this? Oh, uh, the the card yeah. game, uh, Weiss W E I S S, Schwartz. A stamp of a signature. Interesting. S C H, W A R Z. Uh, I believe uh, for the people that follow, I don't know if it's uh, that that's one certain uh, YouTube personality that uh, could be drawn a parallel to Beta Investments. Uh, he made a video that spoke about this fairly extensively, and he is actually uh. He actually kind of caused that market to like jump up as well. Gotcha. Um, mm. if, if you want to go back and kind of uh, look a bit more about his thoughts into it, oh, do you want to get it? Do you want to get into YouTube for a minute? But uh, before we go there, one of the things I've, that's certainly been a fresh trend in the last few years since War of the Spark is Wizards targeting Japan with collectible grade versions of Magic cards, as opposed to leaning into the old trope that Japan primarily cared about the utility of cards. Like, used to be that you wanted to dump your Lilianas and your dual lands and your Snapcasters in Japan because they were going to pay top dollar. And then we have them to produce the Amano Liliana, which is a good EDH card, but was never much of a competitive card. And that's the most expensive magic card of the last decade that you can buy in Japan. Were, were you surprised that we went from four or five hundred bucks during the opening week to six to eight thousand within a couple of years? Um, a, li- a little surprise, to be honest. Um, I, I think the fact that it, that card, uh, like, I remember, like, I think I kind of commented on your poll as well. I think you, the nature of your uh, Twitter poll was, what are the most expensive cards, magic cards that have been produced in the past decade or whatever? Five yeah. years or something, right? Yeah, since, like, 2016 or something. Um, I'm def- I was definitely surprised. Like, I think it was one of the cards that had, like, just very long-term appeal, right? Like, this is one of the cards, I think, uh, from a magic card perspective, this legitimately has good eye appeal, right? It has, like, very iconic art. It's a well-known artist. Um, it's a very unique 
uh, type of art to write something that's been done on like two. I think Amano did two or three other cards, um, but like you know, obviously it was expensive on release. I think for like release, it was probably in like the. I think, like you said, 500 maybe a little bit more in that range. I, I seem to recall them selling for like 800 or something. I think you sold me one for kind 450 or 500 and I flipped it to France for 650 or 700 and I felt like a genius and then had to go back and rebuy it like a year later at 1100 to make the play. Right, right, right. I think I, I, I that, that all sounds about right to me. But again, like regardless, right, like the fact that it's at the price it is now, like... I'm, I'm definitely a little surprised. Like, I thought it would have definitely gone up. I thought it would have kind of gone up more in the way that masterpieces have gone up. Kind of like we see, like, a few small spikes and they would have been steady spikes. I thought, like, a, like, $2,500 or $3,000 price point would be reasonable. Especially because, it, like, World Spark did have a kind of a massive reprint, right? But I didn't... I certainly don't expect it to be, like, $8,000 or whatever it is now. $7,500 to $8,000. And I think a part of this is that to really understand what's going to have the potential to get there, you have to start doing the math on how many likely copies there are. Because when we're talking about Masterpiece Soul Ring or something like that, there was probably about 20,000 produced globally. When we talk about a Mono Liliana, because even though they printed war, Japanese war boxes and ended up distributing them after the fact in secondary and tertiary waves across the globe, still wasn't that big of a print run overall in Japanese. And by my, by my math, there's probably less than 3,000 of those. Now, when we're talking about Sor, uh, Kojima Soren, which is the hot new thing, how are you feeling about that one? Do you think that's like Phyrexian Vorinclex about to collapse, or do you think it's got a chance to to chase a mono? Uh, that one's a bit harder. I think it's like somewhere in between. I think the Phyrexian Vorinclex is like, like is a pretty, like, catastrophic collapse um in price whereas like the mono kind of the complete opposite right like that's like a meteoric rise in price uh, i feel like this one kind of is like kind of is somewhere in the middle i think the appeal is a little bit wider um like like we're kind of talking like where does like phyrexian art stand versus uh the kojima soren versus like a mono who produced art for final fantasy in case people are in the dark right like it's kind of like on that sliding scale i think this is like somewhere in between in a sense that it's like pretty iconic Soren, like pretty iconic character. It's pretty cool. It just kind of kind of comes down to distribution method, right? Like, if we kind of go back to a mono, right? Like, to be clear here, the eight thousand dollar mono, the foil a mono, that's actually for the generation one, yeah, that series is one, the the initial printing, like the first printing of War of the Spark boxes in Japan. Yeah. That are foil. Yeah. Um, we've seen we've seen iterations, right? It came out in a promo pack. It came out. It was reprinted. And what War of Spark was printed in countries across the globe that, like you mentioned, secondary, tertiary printings. Uh, the eight thousand oh, dollar one. Our, that's like, like that's like the cream our, of the crop. That is the premium. That's OG. That's the one that's gonna get that price. Yeah. Um, our our listeners are familiar with this. Yeah, we had we had a few people that came, that came up uh, in Vegas asking, and we actually had to explain to them that that the mono they had like very likely not going to be the S one. Yeah. The 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 the, the, the generation one, as it were. Um, and like like much much lower price point, but still like relatively high. Uh, I think the Soren kind like I kind of it feels like it would be kind of in that like generation three, generation two. The like the subsequent printings are not quite as popular because they weren't like the the OG. Right. So you f you figure like it's probably on track to be something like a FEA jeweled lotus or a masterpiece soul ring at at its top end, at least in terms of the one that's coming out of English collector booster packs. 
Yeah, I think I think like if uh, if the um, the jeweled lotus is kind of an indicator. I think that's kind of like what the top end is. I think like jeweled lotus has a bit more room to grow, right? But it's kind of getting at the point where like it's becoming so hard to find. It wouldn't surprise me if we actually saw kind of like another spike in that particular. Excuse me. Uh, that in in jewel lotus, uh, like commander legends boxes, like collector booster boxes, even draft booster boxes are becoming so hard to find. And again, I think that really speaks volume to how popular commander is as a set, right? Like you look at kind of some of the sets that were printed around that time. I think I want to say it came out last probably it's year, a year ago, ago, actually, probably last November. Yeah, so yep. Um, Right, a lot of the things you can still find them somewhat readily on shelves. Like it's really, really hard to find Commander Legends now, um, and I actually think like sealed Commander Legends, probably one of the best modern uh, era like sealed product you can buy. Yeah, because because that was where there was legitimate logistics issues in in play that were preventing them from printing as many as they wanted. The um, with the Soren, I suspect what we're looking at is that the ja- again the Japanese series one coming out of Japanese-produced set booster boxes, which is incredibly hard to find. Like, you need 444 collector boosters to find it in a collector booster box. You need way more than that to pull it out of a draft or set booster box. And, like, we had vendors telling us they opened 100 boxes and didn't find one. So the, you know, the, my guess is that the, the one that Harryuya puts the highest price tag on is going to be the one that's headed for a mono territory, and then that English one is probably headed to a five hundred to thousand dollar price tag. I think I think that's a reasonable point for it. I think like we've seen kind of like there's this is probably like the like once a year type card like Jewel uh, Jewel Lotus was probably the card last yeah. year. If there's any card this year that would hit that point, it would probably be the Sorn. Yeah, and then and now of course we've got the D and D Commander Legend set coming out next year, so. I'm sure there'll be something sexy in that one too. Yeah, right. like it is. Yeah, they would have All right, to make something Tra- spicy. Travis has got to get to bed. So I just wanted there's one other point I just wanted to touch on yeah. that I think is a defining <laughs> characteristic of the last five years, and that is the advent of collectible investment-driven channels on YouTube. And there's some there's some uh, spin-off of this into TikTok. There's some spin-off of this on Twitter. There's some spin-off of this on Instagram and on you know, Facebook stories or whatever nonsense is over there. Facebook Live, I can't, don't even know. I don't, not, not on Facebook really much anymore. But do you see that as like a major factor that has buoyed this industry at the, the presence of million plus subscriber collectibles channels? Yeah, I think, I think like the pandemic was kind of the catalyst that really took all this off. Like if you're at home and you're completely isolated for the people that like you know did lockdown or whatever right like social media is really your only window into the world and i think the people that have done this well um right like you know we we kind of go back and we look at like uh you know the analog to like beta investments for example um right like that channel is really taken off i think he's done he's done very well um i think he has he has the perfect mix of both entertainment and information uh take with it what you will i'm not i'm not necessarily saying he's right or wrong uh, but I think he's done very well in that fact. I think a lot of the people that have really developed these social media personalities that have done well for themselves, right? We see it very prevalent in the like, sports card world, very prevalent, especially in Pokemon, right? Like Logan Paul, it could like could kind of be the one that like really was like the spark that just made all like that made Pokemon blow blow up for sure. Um, 
I think like the fact that the fact that with like a click of a button, like you can go live and you're just boom, you just have a way of communicating directly to your followers, whoever follows you on Twitch, YouTube, um, Instagram, Twitter, you know, what have you, whatever platform you choose to use. Um, you're basically the fact that, you know, the way the, all these, um, algorithms work with for ads and the type of content you're exposed to you're bait you're like it, it's free marketing right like i don't know i better know how to describe it. if you're able to market yourself if you have the right personality you have you know the funds to do it and the, you're able to put yourself out there you're getting free marketing and you're literally exposing yourself to the people who are in your space anyways um and i i think like you know it's it's I don't have a real way to describe it, then it's it's genius. Like I wish I like had more time and had more ability to be more in the social media space. It's just one of those things that is it, it's quite literally a full time job itself. That that's why you have a lot of these, you know, why is it like it's not even just collectibles, it's not even just Pokemon sports cards, right? Like you have all, companies on all levels just engaging with people on social media because that's that that's how people are choosing to interact nowadays, right? Via right, how often do we hear this came as a result of a video I saw on TikTok, right? Like that just completely blew up, right? Like all these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, having founded an agency so. at the dawn of the digital era and and been in that space for 20 years, it's certainly amazing to me to be having watching this industry having pivoted into a position where instead of the brand like Coke or Hasbro paying an agency to produce an ad for them, on the basis that the ad agency would know have the connections to then put it in front of the right eyeballs. You now are in a space where it's much more common to be for the brand to be partnering with the content producer who is an amateur in most from most angles, at least when they start getting big. Um, they later end up becoming experts once they get big enough. But basically funding an amateur to produce long form advertising for them that is posted on a daily basis. And essentially the viewer is paying the content producer vis-a-vis their willingness to sit through other ads from other brands. Like it's just incredible to me that that has, that they have managed to turn the corner and turn advertising into content. Yeah. I mean, this, this uh, like, it's like a whole, like this is a whole episode itself, right? We talk about this just in terms of how well, how well, like you know, all these like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, right? How how well they're able to monetize this, right? Like YouTube, right? Like you know, we think we don't think about it much, right? But like, why do we see like all these like surveys pop up? Why do we see ads being targeted to us the way they are? Is because quite literally, it just it's making someone money somewhere. Um, and I think kind of you know, COVID has just really accelerated that process much more than it would have if. COVID were to happen and it would just kind of play out naturally. All right. So just final question to wrap things up. We've covered a lot, covered a lot of ground here. It feels like we could go longer if we had the time. Um, everything you guys know, everything we've talked about on a short mid and long-term horizon, are you bullish or bearish about magic as a, as a product and a brand? Uh, short-term, short-term bullish, midterm, Eh, and then long term, like pretty, uh, uh, pretty bearish. Gotcha. Travis. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably a less extreme version of that, but in roughly the same camp. Uh, there's still a lot of meat left on the bone on Magic. If we go out, I mean, it depends on what our time frame is when we're talking about bearish. 
three years is still fine. 15 years, I've shared my opinions about that before. Uh, I don't think it looks too hot. I think climate change is a factor that's going to take its toll sooner rather than later here. So, you know, once you get more than a decade out, it starts to look a lot worse. Yeah, I think I'm I'm bullish out 10 years or whenever there's a major societal upheaval. <laughs> like an even worse case version of COVID emerges that decimates the planet or global warming causes water wars or an economic collapse of some other kind or a meteor hits us. I get bearish very quickly, but the... You know, even in the case of environmental collapse, in that slow, steady progress where the rich get richer and they're pushed closer and closer to the poles and the poor get poorer and they're pushed closer and closer to the equator, uh, I still think brands like Magic do well because, unfortunately, the the facts are that the correct positioning for the brand is probably as a, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 a year hobby anyway. Um, But in the case of massive revolutionary upheaval then all bets are off on everything and we'll have better bigger things to worry about yeah that's that's it's the bigger things to worry about that uh, keeps you up at night is my yeah it was my primary cause for not looking at magic as a multi-generational staple all righty then again, that problem applies to Pokemon, well, we, too. We've had a pretty good chat here. <laughs> thanks, Big thanks to Ed to uh, sharing all his insights with us on his uh, the various angles by which he has uh, parlayed intelligence into success in the hobby industry. And uh, huge thanks to my uh, my co-host here. Six, six big years, partner. 300 episodes. I know. It's a lot. Uh, apparently, six more to go, but... You know, we'll check in back then. And, you know, at episode 600, we're going to have to take a long, hard look at whether we're going to keep doing this. <laughs> Pro- prob- probably <laughs> fair to say that this wouldn't exist with it, without your prompting as well. So credit where credit, where credit is due. Uh, well, thank you. Or your hard work. Uh, all right. So I guess that's a wrap. Where can people find you online, Ed? Uh, so I'm Vermillion on eBay and uh, TCG Player. People can find me on Twitter at Edwin13. Um, I don't post there that often. I probably should. Again, it's just one of those things where I've thought about trying to post content regularly. Uh, maybe something I do more often, but I generally try and only post when it's uh, relevant. Gotcha. Does Vermillion mean something? Um, I want to say it was like something like really dumb. I was I think I was actually looking at Pokemon cards and I like Vermilion just popped in. I think Vermilion is the name of a gym in the original. Uh, so Vermilion is actually just like red, um, and actually yeah. used red like on all my like uh, branding and so like all my like table skirts, um, inserts, etc. They're all red. It's it's very it's very visible. Um, I think that was kind of a just a very low key way of uh, just being different from everyone else that uses like black table skirts or something so i think that was a big part gotcha. of it so you're but you're both lucky in some cultures and you can tell the non asian where red is lucky cultures that uh it's red because you smell blood in the water <clears throat> something there like that all the above all, all the above <laughs> how about you travis where can we find you online Oh, I am still on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. You guys can all find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as uh, 
occasional writing for mggprice.com and my constant haunting of the pro trader discord i'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com pro trader service for just 9.99 a month or 109.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mgg finance minds in the business and a super active discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering probably should point out that our black friday deal is still running if you catch me in a good mood uh, it's $10 off the regular, so $79.99 to $69.99, and $20 off premium Pro Trader. So that takes you from $109.99 to $89.99, and we only do it once a year. So get in while the getting's good. And my my signed cards are still available. <laughs> I have at least one remaining as an option. Uh, all right. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That is episode 300 in the books. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for being here with us on this, uh, I'm going to call it momentous occasion. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I know it's been... Uh... It, it, it were like ships passing at night trying to get me on here at a time that's worked out for both of us but um again i do appreciate you guys having me on here for your 300th episode that's a certainly a celebratory event so thank you T- taking off the boxes on the names in the scene thank you uh ed thank you travis and we'll see you all next week on another episode of mtg fast finance <laughs> Thank you.